everyone, I'm once again happy to bring you another complete episode of The Mind of a Skeptical Leftist. I have another great interview for you. Uh, this time I'm talking to Roger Moran and Joe Roberts from New Left Radio, which is a show they run in association with the Democratic Socialists of Canada. Um, as usual, if you want the full interview, you can find the slightly longer version by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash skeptical leftist, or you can email me at mindofaskepticalleftist at gmail.com. And just let me know that you want a copy of the full interview and uh, I'll send it to you. So then this time around after that, I've got uh, Ask an Anarchist where I'm going to tackle one of the questions that I got on TikTok. Um, it's going to be a slightly different way of doing it because obviously I didn't, I don't have the, the back and forth with Renee. Um, and then after that, I've got uh, the 10th episode of uh, Red Reviews with Justin Clark and we cover the Michael Parenti's book, uh, Black Shirts and Reds. And then you get another Anarchist Reading Corner, where I read an excerpt from the book, The Anarchist Turn. For the intro to this episode, I don't really think I have too much to say, but I do want to say thanks to everyone who listens and watches the show. I've been podcasting for, uh, like, most of the last nine years on, on uh, various projects, and this particular project is just over a year old, and it's gaining viewers and listeners faster than uh, any of my previous work ever did. Uh it could always be better though, so in, the, in that vein, I would appreciate it if you shared the show with people, uh, commented on uh, various social medias, uh, comment on YouTube, uh, you know, upvoted on Reddit when you see it, uh, all that stuff. If uh, you like, share, subscribe, all the stuff, then, you know, it, it gets in, in front of more people. So uh, you can also ensure my time spent on this project by becoming a patron. Uh, I already said the Patreon, but here it is again. It's patreon.com slash skeptical leftist, or you can send a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash skeptical lefty. Uh, I have to thank, uh, I have one particular thank you this episode. Uh, so thank you, Kim, for increasing your pledge this month or whatever, uh, this past couple weeks. I am going to add... Uh, my Calendly link into my um, link tree. So then if anybody who's watching this or listening to this wants to go to linktr.ee slash skeptical Corey, you can, you can do that and become a guest on the show. All you have to do is book a date and time from my available dates. Uh, I do, however, reserve the right to cancel any booked interviews, uh, unless we've discussed it ahead of time. Um, if you just go and you just book one, <laughs> I can't guarantee you that I will follow through. I will let you know though, if I cancel it, um, <clears throat> before I send you into the interview, uh, and it is a really good interview. Like I really, uh, doing the editing on this, I was really enjoying the, just the listening to Roger and Joe talk. Uh, they're brilliant guys. Um, we have some different, uh, opinions on things. Uh, and that's, I think that's totally fine. Like, obviously I'm an anarchist, they're democratic socialists. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but, and I guess I also, I know that a lot of people don't really buy left unity as a thing, right? But I kind of do. I kind of think that there's so much stacked against us that we kind of have to make amends in various places. We kind of have to make, uh, leniencies in various places. I don't want, I don't mean, 
that uh, you know what people are what people call tankies, like the people who are genuine Stalinists who like think that we should uh, you know <clears throat> that gay people should be uh, you know put in gulags or whatever. Uh, people who say like like Maoist feminists who who claim that uh, transgender uh, identity is a bourgeois uh, indulgence. Like, I'm not into that. I'm not doing that. But I do believe that we have to have some level of uh, cohesion, some level of unity between anarchists, uh, socialists, communists, uh, MLs, uh, MLMs, you know, all these various uh, Marxist, Leninist, Maoists, for those (laughs) who might not know. Um, And yes, it's it's people who take bits and pieces of all of it. Uh, Like they think what they think is the best of each philosophy and combines them it's the left is so diverse that it's hard to say okay let's throw everybody out because they don't identify the exact same way as i do and that is part of where this conversation goes i know historically there's differences between socialists and communists and democratic socialists and and whatnot and social democrats and all all this stuff but i really think that we there's value in what uh, Joe and, and uh, Roger are doing in the same way that I think that there's value in what say a Ben Burgess is doing or say uh, um, uh, a, a Robert Evans is doing, or, you know, there's very, everybody's got their, their role to play and, um, or uh, Preston from Comrade uh, Coffee with Comrades. Like these are, everybody's got a value and a role to play. And we're all, working on bringing people to the left whether it's through one way or another and even a bad lefty is still better than (laughs) a bad uh, conservative so uh a bad right winger because i guess (laughs) one might say that the reactionary far right is not necessarily conservative right but so that's kind of i'm i'm going off on a tangent because i'm letting myself fucking do this off the top of my head. <laughs> but, um, but I do think we can create a broad left movement. And sometimes we're going to have to uh, have, we're going to have friends and allies who have different philosophical tendencies. And again, okay. So I'm less of an incrementalist than Roger and Joe. And obviously as an anarchist, I'm, I'm more of a revolutionary ma- mindset, uh, but I like their takes and I think, I think uh, their views are worthy of listening and to and worthy of consideration. Even if we end up, you know, coming to different conclusions, it's, I, I think it's still valuable. Uh, what else? One of the reasons that I, <laughs> I guess I, I put in here, like one of the reasons that I think that uh, anarchism is the best left philosophy, the one that I like the most is because I think that it can incorporate arguments for and against revolution or general strikes or incremental change. And it can use those and it can take the best out of all of them. And that's, I think that part of the core of anarchism is being pragmatic and being able to use the best things from other philosophies. But that's my own take. Not everybody's going to agree with that. <clears throat> so, obviously, and my end goal is, I mean, ho- I think that the, it's the same, a similar end goal to someone like uh, Roger and Joe, where I want a true uh, democracy of the masses. I want people ruling themselves. I don't want uh, leaders 
ruling over us from on high, right? Like, I don't want any of that shit. I just, I think that we can use multiple tools to get there. I am open to criticisms of this interview. So uh, I know uh, a lot of my listeners and viewers are not in the same philosophical boat as Roger and Joe on a variety of subjects. I, I just, as I said, I want you to take what they say in good faith, because I really do think that there's uh, a lot of, uh, a lot we can learn from each other, even if uh, we don't necessarily adopt everything that somebody says. So with that said, I'm going to send you to the interview. Hi and welcome to The Mind of a Skeptical Leftist, the podcast where I talk to a variety of people to spread critical thinking, progressive politics, and left-wing philosophy. Today I'm joined by Roger Moran and Joe Roberts from New Left Radio. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So I guess uh, a good place to start is always, who are you guys? (laughs) What's a little bit of your background? (laughs) Sure. Yeah, I can start. Uh, so, uh, oh, as you said, my name is Roger Moran. I'm uh, based in uh, London, Ontario. Uh, I'm originally from uh, just outside of Vancouver. I grew up in a small community named uh, Fort Langley, uh, about 40 minutes east of Vancouver. Uh, lived all across the country. I went to university in Halifax and uh, lived in various places in Ontario before settling down here in Ontario uh, in London about 15 years ago. Uh, I guess I've been involved in uh, in lefty politics for uh, well, pretty much my entire adult life. Um, working in organizing and working on campaigns, uh, doing some advising work. Uh, also, uh, you know, working uh, in uh, labor organizing as well. I, I work at uh, Western University, my day job, uh, and I'm a union rep there for uh, approximately 150 of our unionized employees. Uh, and so, uh, in addition to that, I've got, I've got a beautiful family and uh, a beautiful co-host that I do uh, <laughs> I do a new radio with. Uh, we're doing five days a week now, and, nice, uh, huh? and yeah, and that's that's kind of my story, I guess. Right on. Yeah. So me, I don't know. Jeez, where do I start? Uh, so I actually, <laughs> I grew up in uh, Dayton, Ohio, in the U.S., um, and uh, kind of found leftism. I grew up in a, a family, a working class family. Uh, kind of had leftist politics uh, in our blood and and by experience it became you know more of a necessity than a political ideology I think um, and then uh, kind of found it really matured in leftist ideology on my own I think as I got a little bit older um, I went to university in Alaska and saw some some pretty uh, pretty strange stuff and uh, I think things that really facilitated a need for, for leftist politics. And I kind of found myself moving to the left as I got older. Um, and, and the more that I, more that I realized how the system was uh, deranged, the more I realized that it needs change. And the only way that that's going to happen is, is from the left. And so uh, I actually, I took that went to work in politics for about 10 years. So I worked in uh, progressive politics in the U S uh, ran campaigns, did lobbying work, did issue advocacy, um, I ended up working for uh, on the on the Obama campaign in 2008, which was kind of like my my last big hurrah. And we all thought he was going to be a, a real a real leftist and uh, really push for the alert. agenda. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, you know, after that, I was pretty disillusioned with with democratic politics for sure, and, and right. progressive politics. Um, ended up running myself for for United States Congress in 2010. Uh, and I won the nomination as a, as a lefty, as a progressive Democrat, uh, and then got creamed in the general election, just like absolutely obliterated and said like, I need, I need a shift from politics for a while. Um, 
and I went to work in nonprofit and did fundraising and uh, management and nonprofit for a long time, about ten, for about the last 10 years in the Jewish community. And then, uh, you know, found myself realizing that those problems hadn't changed. And a lot of the work that I was doing while important, like, you know, we did a lot of work with elderly people and people in, in need and in poverty. And it was important work, but we weren't actually changing anything. We were right. like a Band-Aid, a last resort. Like you come to us when you need to pay the rent and nobody else is helping you. And you're like, you know, or you're, you have no food in the refrigerator and you're like, Hey, I just need some groceries. Like that's the kind of calls that I was getting to help. Right. And I realized like, this isn't going to change without some real push and some real coordination, some real organizing. Um, and so, you know, met Roger uh, a couple of years ago and I think it, we just kind of really started pushing things forward. And and so now I work for a managing director at Jewish Currents Magazine. It's a, a leftist kind of the magazine of the Jewish left been around since uh, 1948, uh, 47. Uh, and then uh, I don't know, I, I write columns. I, write, I do, I do lots of things, Corey, like uh, just about anything. <laughs> right. You say, Hey, this is a way to make some change. Or like if I see, I'm a doer. So I see like, you know, I see things that need to, I'm like, Hey, I could make that better. I'm going to just jump in there and get things done and try to push things. So I do a little bit of it all. That's awesome. I, uh, it's interesting because, uh, I, I don't know. How old are you guys? I'm I'm 46. Okay. So we're about the same age. (laughs) And, uh, like I grew up in like a super conservative family. So then as uh, I kind of rebelled against that and I was Mm -hmm. like an NDP guy when I was in my early twenties, but then I had kids and I became a conservative for a while. And then when I hit like divorce age, 35, <laughs> I was like, hey, wait a second. Everything I've been doing is wrong. <laughs> so then, uh, that, that brought me to like left politics. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's good that I, I think that it's really good that we have some people like our age because it often seems like lefty politics is like just a young person's game. And then, and then it's too easy for people on the right to dismiss it as like, oh, well, they'll just change their mind when they're yeah. older, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think also, you know, like people who have been around like in organizing um, for, you know, like as long as Joe and I have, I mean, there's a lot of passion amongst, you know, like the sort of next generation of um, of uh, activists, right? Um, but, uh, you know, like along with that passion, there's, there, you know, you need to have organization skills along with that. How do you turn that passion into actually taking action and right. change, right? And I think that that's something that, um, you know, Joe and I both have like a ton of experience in and that, you know, like we try to, um, you know, uh, we talk about that a lot on, on New Left Radio is how you can facilitate change. These are the things you could do um, because we're trying to take that experience and, you know, like, um, I guess, combine that with with the passion of the next generation because you really do need both. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's easy to as a as a Gen Xer, it's easy to get jaded and feel like, okay, well, I, I'm not nothing's working anyway. So what the hell are we doing? Right. Yeah. But then the young people can be like, no, I don't care if it's not working for you right now. <laughs> like, well, I'm just gonna deal with it. Oh uh, yeah, and it's really it's a it's a great thing because we like kind of we help each other out, right? I mean, like, I think that like their passion really sort of uh, you know uh, reignites um, you know passion that I think over the course of 20 years of doing this kind of work. I mean, you know, I mean, for anybody who's done this kind of work for as long as we have, I mean, change is incremental. It's hard. It's an uphill battle. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like, sometimes you get a little bit like, like, uh, you know, like really frustrated by, um, you know, like when you, when you look at how things have changed over time, even though we've made forward progress, it's not as much as we were, 
uh, hoping, and certainly not as much as we had thought when we were 21, right? Um, so, so I think that, like for me at least, I draw a lot. Uh, I draw a lot of energy off of the passion uh, of the next generation of people. And then I think that, you know, like I said, like we give, you know, we give them stuff about organizing. They give us sort of the, the, you know, the jazz us up to, you know, to keep fighting and, and, and together we, we really, I think, uh, uh, are doing a great job at moving the conversation forward in this country. That's awesome. So yeah, I, I guess, Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think it's also, you know, you mentioned like to a young person's game in some ways. And I think that part of that comes from, you know, there's this feeling that you've got to, go into the workplace and you got to do you kind of follow this path. And I think that um, threatening that, like you become dependent on that, right? Like you can't just leave yeah. your job and do something else. And like, you know, if you start to say I'm a leftist people get a little weird about that. Cause I think there's this mm. view that everybody who has any kind of left leaning politics is like, you know, is an apologist for, for the atrocities of the, of the Soviet union or the, of, of communist China or whatever. Um, and like, not just like, hey, maybe I just want the world to be a little bit better place. And I think there's a better way to organize our economy. And like that, you know, there's this like that red scare mentality still out there. And so I think it, it's a lot of people and I, I include myself in this, like, you know, I've had to bite my tongue in the workplace and be like, I can't say this. Like, I can't say what I really think or what I really feel because it's going to come back on me. Like I could lose my job. I could put my family in jeopardy. You know, all of these yeah. things. Mm-hmm. I'm very lucky that I found a place now where I don't have to do that. And that like, you know, that I, all of my coworkers, I'm probably moderate compared to some of my coworkers. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> but, you know, like that's a, like that is a privileged place for me to be in wow. and, and really not very many places I could have landed like that. So like, I think that there are, you know, that's part of it. And I think that uh, if you look at the polling in this country, like people overwhelmingly think the economy's broken. Like they think yeah. something has to change. Now, if you tell them that that's the answer is socialism, they might shy away <laughs> from that a little bit, but I think that's going to change. I think that people are awake to that in a different way than they have been in the past. And I think there is a, there's a normalization and I give a lot of credit to, you know, like the, the Sanders campaign and some of the other campaigns in the U S the TSA for pushing that forward. Like there is a normalization of what socialism is uh, and what it is not. Um, And I think that, you know, it makes it acceptable in political circles where even five years ago, probably it wasn't or definitely 10 years ago. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago that saying the word socialist would have got you drummed out of anywhere, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You wouldn't be able to say that and still have a platform or win an election or, you know, any of that. So. Yeah, I mean, look at uh, look at like Dennis Kucinich, for example, right? I mean, he was sort of like Bernie Sanders before Bernie Sanders was Bernie Sanders on the national stage, right? And, <laughs> right. and he is just laughed out all over the place. He's mocked left and right for, for his ideas, which are now like totally mainstream ideas, right? Yeah. Yeah, the the Medicare for all thing really uh, in the U.S. really helped, I think, push that forward because it's so such mm. an obvious issue, right? Like, I don't know, who, <laughs> I don't know how you can be intellectually honest and argue against Medicare for all at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think you can be, and no. I think we've seen that in the arguments. I mean, it's like you know, it's it's fear tactics, it's a loss of choice, and. Um, I, look, I've lived under both systems. I can tell you, like, my my, ch- my child was born here. You know, I'm a Canadian, and like my my healthcare here is you can't tell the difference. Like, I can't tell it right. functionally. There's no difference. Quality of care, there's no difference. Uh, in some ways, I actually think it's even it's better here because there's not a profit motive. Like, funnel you through, get you out, get the next mm-hmm. person in who's going to co- cost more or whatever. Um, yeah. And so, actually, like, I think that you know the, these fear tactics of 
death panels and all this nonsense. Like that's what it is. I mean, there's no real, there's no real argument against it anymore. Yeah. I love the death panels one because that's Ah. literally what insurance companies are. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But uh, yeah. So I guess, uh, where did new left radio come from? Uh, (laughs) So I've had a idea of doing something like this for a long time and like was looking for the right, I couldn't do it by myself. Like I was just like, I can't, what am I going to do? Like sit in also, a room I, and talk to on. I feel like you could definitely do it by yourself. I'm really glad that you don't do it by yourself, but I feel like no, you know. I couldn't, I need you. You know, I also know my skill sets and like, I know what I'm good at when I'm not. And Roger and I are, are great partners. And I, mm-hmm. I, when I met Roger, I was like, this is, this is the guy maybe that I've been looking for for a long time, like to do things with. Cause like he can't, we compliment each other really well. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm obtuse. I know myself, right? So I'm going to be uh, very, I'm obtuse. I'm, I'm like reactionary about like getting things done. Like I'm a let's move fast and break things kind of person. Um, Roger's much more tempered. He's much more, uh, <laughs> planful. He's much more, um, I don't know. He's got like all of, of those. He, he knows how to slow me down at certain times when I good need it. Like, balance. Yeah. Very good mm-hmm. balance. And so like we, I was just like, Hey man, let's do this thing. And then, you know, where are we, Roger? Yeah, I mean, we've grown by leaps and bounds. It's been amazing, the the journey that we've been on just in the year and a half. I mean, um, and, you know, I, I, I'm really, uh, yeah, so I am sort of more, I do take risks. I'm a calculated risk taker, but I, like, I'm an administrator and operations manager by trade. That's like okay, what I do. for. So, like, yeah. I work in healthcare administration, <laughs> I right, um, and education. Um, so, like, you know, this is what I do. I know how to do, you know, this that, that sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, a lot of... Um, are moving forward on things. Uh, if it had been left to me, um, I think we probably wouldn't have moved forward on some things as quickly <laughs> as we did. Uh, and so I'm glad that like Joe, Joe pushes me to challenge myself on those things. You know, like basically right. the conversations we have is Joe goes, Hey, I think we should do this. I'm like, yeah, cool idea. Do you think this is the right <laughs> time though? Because, and then Joe goes, yes, it's the right time. And <laughs> and then we figure out a way to make it happen. And it's, and you know what? The, and the relationship has worked beautifully so far. Um, That's I mean, great. we, we, when we first started out, I I mean, we were, uh, <laughs> we were, uh, you know, just hoping it was like a hobby for Joe and I really, it was to, um, you know, start talking about the things we care about. It was to promote, uh, you know, the DSC, um, to talk about, uh, you know, the work that was happening there, the growing of that organization that, you know, we were both involved in. Um, it was, you know, just sort of something that we wanted to do for fun and get, you know, some, get the message out there. But, uh, you know, I think we expected maybe a couple of hundred people or something like that. Maybe we'd, we'd get to, right. I mean, but we've grown it into, I mean, we've got thousands and thousands of listeners that tune in every episode. Uh, and it's, uh, over, you know, we're just, we're just wrapping up our third season, hitting into our fourth. It's going to drop in August. And, uh, I mean, we just keep growing by leaps and bounds. And it is a testament, I think, uh, certainly, you know, in part to the work that Joe and I do and our producer, Santiago, but really it's a testament to, uh, you know, our, to our listeners and the fact that there was such a massive gap, um, you know, on addressing these things and talking about these things. People are hungry for this kind of content. Um, right. and, and we just kind of happened to, I think, uh, grab a hold of that need. Um, we didn't know it going in that there was this gap, but we're certainly glad that there was, um, not only just because, you know, it's enabled us to, 
um, you know, continue to to do what we love, but because these conversations are now being had and they're being listened to uh, by like, you know, tens of thousands of people um, that tune right. in every single week to the show. And th- and that's huge. It's really important to us that, that that those messages and those stories that aren't covered by mainstream corporate media uh, are, are being talked about and are becoming a part of people's consciousness. Yeah, I, I guess I've been listening to you guys for must be just over a year at this point. And it it was, it was one of those situations where I'm looking for people who are talking about leftist issues in Canada specifically, because yeah, that's uh, the hard part, right? there's the hard a ton part, yeah. of American stuff, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like, so then, okay, are we, somebody's talking about this stuff, it's Canadian, and I mean, I think, yeah, it just hit the right exact moment when mm. I was looking for something, and I think that seems like every, a lot of people are like that. Yeah, it was kind of one of those stars align kind of things, you know. Um, it, it it really was one of those situations. Yeah, you never know when the success of something like this is going to go up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I also think like we're just at this inflection point in a lot of ways that mm-hmm. like, um, you know, I think it's more than stars aligned actually. Like, I think we, I think we. <laughs> well, no, seriously, it's a lot of work, right? It's a lot of work. Oh but yeah, even, of course. Even more than the work, and like, um, yeah, I give up most of the credit to our producer for that. Like, he's awesome. Like, cutting it all together and oh, really yeah. editing it and like making it what it is sound great and sound professional. Like, we started, I did it, and it was not as good. <laughs> Uh, not even close. Um, but like, I think we're, there's also just like, you know, there's a sense in the ether that something is shifting. Like people are more aware of politics um, and more aware of like how, I don't know, how dangerous it is just to live in this society, like how close to the edge we are. Mm, and, yeah. um, you know, if, I don't know, like I have intergenerational trauma from poverty so like i'm like you know my i was like i'm gonna lose my job i'm gonna lose everything tomorrow that could happen at any time like that's always in my mind but for a lot of people like now i'm an adult and i you know meet people i realize that that's not how people think um (laughs) many people are like hey i got a job i'm gonna go there tomorrow it's gonna be fine um but like i think that this situation over the last 14 months has maybe we'll realize oh maybe that's not that permanence isn't there that this could all fall apart yeah and i think like in a way, like when we launched this, we knew that that was out there. We knew that that feeling was out there, but we didn't really know how to harness it or like how to address it or reach the people. Um, and it kind of, you know, happened organically over, I mean, with, with the work and with, you know, with us really pushing it and driving it. But like it has happened like reading the room in a way and adjusting right. to that and saying, you know, what is the situation and how are we going to address the problems that we're facing? Yeah, that's fair. I, I actually, I was just talking to somebody yesterday and like, we're trying to ex, like explain that feeling that, that, uh, change is here, right? Like there, this is the moment, there's a moment going on <laughs> mm-hmm. and you know, but with the civil rights stuff last year and then everybody waking up to the injustice of the system under COVID, like, uh, plus climate change and now the oceans are on fire and <laughs> all this yeah. stuff, like. I think it's hard to keep people from seeing the flaws that are in the system, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just so in our face. And I think, you know, when we didn't have all the distractions that are normally out there in the last year and a half, right? Like it wasn't like, hey, I'm just, I'm going to go, you know, go to the bar tonight with my buddies or whatever. And like you're sitting at home and you're thinking like, what's happening in the world? <laughs> um, and I think that like uh, from a lot of the people that I've met through the work we've done over the last year and a half, that's been their answer. Their answer has been like, I never thought about this stuff. I didn't right. care. Mm. Or, or uh, 
to, I mean, it's, I was involved, but like I was involved in a very mainstream kind of normy way. Like, um, you know, I was involved on my liberal EDA and like that was good enough or uh, whatever. I, I made a donation to Justin Trudeau every once in a while or something, you know, something <laughs> like that. I'm not kidding. Like these hear that. And they say, and then like, I just realized that that that's everything's different. Everything's changed. Um, yeah. And like, I, I want to find a new way and Path. I, I need a release for that. And that's the other thing. There just hasn't been the vehicles for that release. Right, right. No. Yeah, like that's something that uh, when I was looking for somewhere to uh, to get information on lefty politics in Canada, like it was nice to find the DSC because there isn't like, I mean, the NDP is kind of left <laughs> sometimes. But, mm. but uh, so, I mean, I guess that's a good kicking off point. Tell me about the DSC. <laughs> yeah, what, geez, what is there to say? You know, I think it's, uh, um, uh, I, I started when I, well, look, when I, when I, I've been involved in politics a long time, like I mentioned, and, um, you know, I realized I worked for a lot of progressive Democrats in the U S and I guess progressive in quotes, like, uh, you know, progressive on social issues and it would come down to financial, like economic issues. And it's the same thing always. Um, and I got involved with the DSA like pre Bernie Sanders. It was pretty small. Like there was not a lot going on, <laughs> frankly. I mean, it was like a pretty niche, small organization, uh, which is, as you, I'm sure as you know, like it's gone nuts. Like they have 95,000 members or something mm -hmm. now. Um, and so came to Canada uh, to live here like first time in my adult life and like looked around and just didn't see anything like that. Um you know, yeah, the, the NDP was kind of the natural place to go, but it's an electoral party. It's a little different. Like there's nothing outside of electoral politics. Um, looked at like some of the, there were a few small organizations that existed and a few socialist organizations, but like not involved in electoralism or like just had a very different focus. And so, and I think also, you know, and there were some other organizations that like are comparable, but necessarily weren't looking at economic issues were more focused on like foreign policy issues and also social issues, but just kind of like that from the ultra perspective, like ultra liberal. Right. Um, and so, you know, same thing, like Roger helped me, help me with that. It's like we got together and we had a few other people and we said like, let's do something. Like let's start something. Mm -hmm. um, and we got a lot of pushback at the beginning for that. Like a lot. Oh <laughs> yeah. Right? Oh yeah. A lot of pushback from those within like uh, other leftist movements in Canada um, that uh, just sort of like questioning what we're doing and in our motives and our intention. Um, a lot of people personally attacked Joe uh, and uh, a lot of, you know, pointing to his uh, his his background working in the Jewish community uh, as a problem. Uh, okay. And um, so it, there was a lot of. Uh, really um, unfortunate um, and uh, I will say anti-Semitic remarks that were made about uh, Joe and, and his involvement Please. yeah, uh, in, in politics and, uh, and that, uh, you know, the, the DSC is just a, a front for, you know, this, you know, for lack of a better uh, phrase, this, you know, money-grubbing guy from the U.S. Um, and so, you know, that's a narrative that stuck around for a while because people tend to cling on to those things, right? And, um, but, you know, I think that you know, the fact that you know, the DSC has grown and, uh, you know, uh, I think that all of our members and, and the leadership has shown um, that, you know, that is not the case and that, uh, um, you know, the DSC and its members are like a, a progressive bunch. We're all sort of like, you know, we're in the same fight here, right? And I guess what's most frustrating is that it was... It's a classic thing that happens in leftist politics is where, you know, there's there's these different organizations and groups and segments, whatever you want to call them, that 
um, agree on 80% of things, right? But the yeah. 20% that instead of getting together on that 80% and working together on the other 20, they focus on the 20% and then try to just like completely discredit you entirely because we don't agree a hundred percent. And right. it is, <laughs> it's no way to get ahead. It's no way to make any kind of movement. And there's, there's this, like a purity test almost, I know, right. uh, amongst leftists in Canada <laughs> that you have to tick all the boxes or you're no good. And we just said to like, you know, fuck that. Like, we don't agree with that. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. it's bullshit, quite frankly. And, and people like that and organizations like that are holding the left back. Yeah. Well, I think, look, I mean, you have to think about it this way, right? Like if we are really doing what we're like, if we actually live the values we, we talk about, which is to organize working class people, there are going to be a lot of people who don't agree with all of the boxes we want them to check, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, like conservative people are there's working class conservatives, right? I mean, of course. And like, if we want to actually show them, like, hey, class power means something, that means like we might have to we're going to have to accept people into the tent who have different feelings on some of, the, especially on some of the social issues. That doesn't yeah. mean that mm -hmm. that we like give up our values and say like, oh, you know, we're willing to capitulate on these things because we're not. But I think it's willing to say like, you know what? I mean. Let's actually I'll t look, take a step back. Think about it this way. A labor union by nature is not a progressive. The people in it are not progressive, right? Yeah, but, right. But, but the body of the union becomes progressive, right? And so like, right. why did you see United Auto Workers fighting for racial justice in the 50s and 60s? It wasn't because all of the, the white auto workers were all of a sudden anti-racist. It was because they were in a body with black men who worked, black men and women who were also working next to them. And they realized like, you know what? I have a hell of a lot more to lose by opposing you and, and like what's good for you than us working together. Uh, yeah. We can gain more. And so they pulled those people along. And I think we have to view that the same way. If we actually want to pull people along in the conversation. It has to be more than just, you know, these like ultra liberal uh, check boxes that you have to tick every, tick, tick every box or else you're out. I think uh, th that's probably, I think that's why the, project of undermining unions has been so important to the right at this, mm. you know, and to be, to capital at this time, right. Or over the last, however long it's been, like I live in Saskatchewan. We used to be an NDP place with lots of strong unions. And over the last 20, 30 years, you've seen like the mainstream viewpoint on unions is that they are no good. And they basically are crooks that make workers lazy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah. that's that. So, I mean, I work in the oil field, so I cannot say union at work now <laughs> without, you know, without some pushback and without, mm -hmm. you know, potentially risking uh, my position. And it's so, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're not, we're not looking for everybody to tick all the boxes though. No. I don't want, again, like you say, you don't want to capitulate to racism and, you know, right. but but you have people to understand are, that people come from different places yeah, that's and right. like, you know, racism is learned. It can be unlearned. Right. Yeah. And like, yeah. that's the same with any of these beliefs that are, you know, in, inherently biased against someone or something. It, you learned that somewhere. Right. And it may be from some people. Like, I think I give them benefit of the doubt. Like some people, it's just ignorance to, to other, other perspectives. Um, some people it's, it's malice and like malice is a different story than ignorance. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And I think we have to be like, you know, you may not understand the plight of indigenous people. That doesn't mean that you hate indigenous people. So like, let us, let's, let's pull you along. Let's show you. Right. I mean, and th that's a very different thing than just being like, 
you know, you're, you're not active in the fight for indigenous sovereignty, then, then you're not one of us. I mean, that's, that's otherizing people right away. Yeah. Yeah. And not every Canadian is going to be fully on board. Like they don't, not everybody understands colonization, right? Like they don't understand, they haven't learned about it. We've been taught that Canada is this beacon of hope in, you know, a dark world (laughs) instead of the genocidal colony that it is. And it's hard to unlearn that without, you know, a little bit of guidance. Well, yeah. you have to, and you start asking questions about what what is what does that mean about me, right? If 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 my idea about what this country is, you know, is 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 incorrect, um, the, the, what does that mean about me? That it takes some real, you know, the, it's a real, um, you know, trigger to for self reflection, and that's a really uncomfortable thing to do, right? I mean, yeah. even for those of us that you know make a habit of doing it, I mean, I still I've been going to therapy for years. I know how to do this stuff, <laughs> but like there are still times when like I discover or I'm told about like a problematic behavior or, or perspective that I have. And like, even though I know how to do it and I'm a fan of doing it, ah, that's really uncomfortable, you know, to kind of think about. Right. And for people yeah. who maybe this is their first time uh, down this road uh, and trying to figure out um, or try to reconcile rather how, you know, they fit into, uh, you know, a, a colonizing settler nation like Canada and what their role is in perpetuating that uh, th- that's, that's difficult to do. And I think that we need to be more understanding that that's difficult for people to do and not shut them out. We, I think we need to be open to having conversations uh and not start not start out those conversations by going you're an idiot and a racist and this is why but instead um you know being open to actually having a conversation and bringing them in because you're not going to change anyone's mind by starting out by telling them they're an idiot well yeah that, and i think that's it right one of the things Corey, that we talk about is like our political ideology at its core is about compassion and about empathy for other mm-hmm. people like yeah if you're not, if you don't have those things, you'll probably never be a leftist. Like if you just don't care what happens to the people, like there's no reason for you to ever be a leftist because you, it's all about how much you can get and who cares about yeah, everybody else. That's right. But if we actually believe that, then where are those values in our movements? Like we have to be compassionate to, to the people we want to be alongside us as comrades. Like we have to say like, look, I may not know you. I may not have ever lived your experience and I don't understand what it's like to be you. But like, I care about you anyway, because we're all in this like, fight together we're all in this struggle for like what is a better world together uh and if we don't live that value if we don't show people that compassion then we're just hypocrites at the end of the day we're just we're just politicos like everybody else Mm. and it's just a different politics that's all yeah Yeah, just just another pundit (laughs) Mm -hmm, exactly (laughs) yeah it's it's tough because uh it's tough on a day-to-day basis to like always carry that out but it is yeah worth the effort, right? Like it's worth the, if you can convince somebody that maybe, you know, they can re-examine their views on indigenous peoples, or uh, maybe they can, you know, feel empathy for the Muslim family that got run down. uh, Then you can, I don't know, maybe we can make people come to our side a little bit at a time. I mean, that's it. It's shared humanity Mm -hmm. is at its core, right? And like, we all have more in common than we actually have different. I mean, we may speak different languages and practice different faith traditions and like be from different places with different nationalities, but those are all constructs. I mean, at its core, like we all want, we all want for our children to have a better life. We all want, uh, you know, we all want peace and security and safety. We all want, you know, love and family. Like those, those are universal constructs. Like that's shared among all human beings, you know, 
uh, what God you pray to is that's a decision you've made yeah. mm. to believe or not. Right. I mean, like, that's not the same thing as it's just like what our at our core, who we are. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I guess, okay. This is kind of a shifting gears, but yeah. <laughs> um, one of the questions I usually ask people early on in the show is what is your political identity? So uh, like, where are you guys? <laughs> and like, uh, are you straight up socialist, state socialist, uh, Marxist, Leninist? Uh, <laughs> which brand do you follow? Uh, I I would call myself a democratic socialist. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I'm a democratic socialist for sure. Um, and I, I think I would err on the side of market socialism if I had to. If you really okay. pressed me for a little bit more drilled down, uh, but you know, I'd say generally democratic socialist. I guess that makes sense with the Democratic Socialists of Canada. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think like well, you know, there's, there's people that be you know that I would fall outside of the, you know that maybe identify a little bit more left or a little bit more right uh, that are that are a part of the DSC and uh, that, you know and that's uh, that's great. I think. Yeah, I mean, we definitely have people who identify as social democrats. Um, I'd say we definitely have people who identify as just progressive, like maybe don't have more than that identity. Like uh, we have, there are people, members who have, I think much farther leftist views, like mm-hmm. more Marxist. Um, but you know, it's a spectrum. And I, I think for me, the one that makes the most sense given the system that we live in and if a realistic nature of change and uh, is democratic socialism. Yeah. I think there's, I, I often ask people like, do you, favor the the revolutionary style or are you more of an incremental style of progressive or leftist and almost universally everybody says well i'm on this spot but i think we need all of it right like I, we need people who are like that aggressive type of uh like pushing the boundaries all the time and then we need the people who are more like okay this is what we can actually do in the system that we have yeah i think it's i think you need to work within that system that we that we have here right i mean and and I know that you know for a lot of people it's uh that's not soon enough, you know. It's so uh, slow. <laughs> it's so slow, but it is so slow, but we got here in a slow kind of way, right? I mean, the only way that things change uh in my opinion at least is through like organized sustained pressure and it's it's incremental change over the course of time. Sometimes it takes decades for those kinds of things, right? Um but like that is how this neoliberalism sort of crept into government and mainstream politics are little bit you know little changes at a time, little seeming you know, but now uh, these innocuous little changes that were made to policies and things like that, right? It became then ingrained in our policies, which then in turn became ingrained in our culture and our society. So, yeah. uh, and we know that that model works because that's how we got in this mess is because people <laughs> were following it. So we need to use, I think at least, we need to use that same model that those who brought us to this new liberal state used, but use it in, uh, you know, the way that serves the common good of, of humanity. Um, but, but using those tools nevertheless, because the, the system just does not allow for the kind of like rapid change, um, that people are looking for. Uh, and, you know, I, certainly you can, you know, elect, uh, in the States, you could elect a president that's very left wing. You can elect, you know, this is an NDP government comes in here, right? And just like basically sweeping changes. Well, the next government can just come in and undo all those changes, yeah, yeah. right? Um, and so we need something that is incremental because, like, I, as I said, then it becomes a part of the system itself. And that's how, that's how you fight back against the system. You use, you work within it. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of people take issue with that, <laughs> but it's not, uh, but I'm not, a, I'm not a revolution. I, I don't advocate for revolution uh, in any sense, because to me, uh, revolution is incredibly undemocratic. 
uh, and uh, it's it's the will of a, of, a, of a minority of people that happen to get together. Um, but and it, but it's not reflective of uh, of the of the major population, and so I take issue with it. Yeah. The, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I think yeah I agree with Roger. I mean. I also think it's just in practical terms, like we have to look at where we live and like what our life is like. Right. And we're talking about the like getting people to join a working class movement in general is hard. Like there's a lot of apathy out there, you know, like why would I do that and go home, watch TV and go bowling with my buddies or whatever. My life is comfortable. (laughs) Yeah. And if it's not comfortable, it's comfortable, more comfortable than a lot of places on this earth and like a lot of conditions that have led to revolution. And so, like, I think there's we have to be really realistic with ourselves. If you are trying to organize the shop floor and you go down and you're talking to somebody who's like a working class person who has a couple kids and and you say, like, we're going to have a revolution. Like, that's insane. I mean, you have to really think about that in context of like, what does mm-hmm. that mean for them? They look at right. you like this is the most. So I I'm lose my house, join. I lose my car, yeah. I, lose, I lose all the I'll things lose that everything. I've got. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think we have to be realistic about that. I also think, to Roger's point about time, and, like, you know, Eugene Debs ran for president in the United States, what, 1912, the first time? Yeah. Um, if you look at his platform, at the time it was considered radical and socialist. We have all of those things today. Right. It's like 40 hour work week, weekends off. Like they were asking for those kind of things, which a hundred years ago was radical. Today it's normal and we've normalized that. So we have shifted the conversation. It just, to Roger's point, happens incrementally. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, like we have to make sure we're not winding back the clock while we're still pushing things forward slowly. And that's, I think, where the challenge comes in. And the last 30 to 40 years have been really problematic because Governments, especially conservative government and and private capital, have figured out how to work together uh, yeah. to to really unwind a lot of those reforms mm. and uh, kind of the the ballot box revolution that was happening. And I think, frankly, you know, I, people disagree with me, and that's fine. I think Jimmy Carter was actually the catalyst for that. Which you know, it's funny because most people say like, "Oh, Jimmy Carter was a was a he's completely- the good guy." <laughs> yeah, but he's a nice guy, whatever. But like most people say, like look at it and say like, he was ineffective, but he was actually very effective in in loosening the grip of corporate America, and they didn't like it. Right? They felt threatened by that. You know, right. if you look at like in, in 1978, 1979 was about the the like the the loosest grip that they've ever had on on the United States uh, government, and then. What happened? Reagan gets elected with the help of corporate America and winds it all back. And then not only does that, but pulls along Canada and the UK, right? And like yeah. into this neoliberal uh, path. And and so like we're dealing with that still. And like we may have a little bit nicer, more friendly neoliberalism, but it's still neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. at the core is is still undermining all uh, working class people economically, and that's that's the goal. Yeah, it's to speak to I guess both points, like the time thing. I think. I've been listening to a lot of like history stuff <laughs> the last little while. And even things like uh, major revolutions often take multiple decades, right? Like nothing happens overnight, even if you have that situation. Mm-hmm. But also, like you say, like we are currently in a very small minority <laughs> of the population. We're growing. We're expanding our our communities all across Canada and the United States. but we are a small group right now. And to think that, you know, we can overthrow the government and then uh, 
you know, everybody's going to suddenly support us. That's not how that works. Right. <laughs> and really do. I mean, do we want that? Like, I think do we, we want the, I think people think about like what happens after a revolution, yeah. mm-hmm. right? But we like, want the utopia. <laughs> yeah. But do you actually like, I don't want to, I don't want to like hurt people. I don't want to, I want to make my case to people that this is better. And like, you know, it goes back to this conversation about even with incremental change, but like this Gramscian notion of, of cultural hegemony is like, you can't, he's Gramsci Gramsci says that you, you can only rule people at the barrel of a gun for so long. Right. Right. You you have to actually make them believe that this is a better way forward and a different path is possible. And so like, that's on us. And guess what? You know what? Revolution's actually the cop out. That's the easy way to do that, right? Mm. It's e- much easier to say like we're going to use violence to, right. to change people's mind because you're forcing them. They don't have a choice. That's right. Much harder to say like I'm going to convince you that everything you believe is maybe <laughs> not true, and like there's a different way to make things happen and a different way to live our lives and organize ourselves. That's really hard. And so like of yeah. course it's going to yeah. take a hundred years, two hundred years, five hundred years, mm-hmm. but like. I have to imagine it's possible. Like we have to imagine like no one thought feudalism would end. No one, right. you know, no one thought mercantilism would end, but they did. And I, this will end too. It's just a matter of when. Yeah, no, that's right. I think, yeah, like I, I really do empathize with the revolutionary instinct that people have, like you say, cause it is the easy way out. It's, mm. it's the, I'm too frustrated now. I've hit a brick wall with this particular situation. And so let's do this thing. That's going to blow it up. And yeah, like that's probably going to lose me a lot of listeners, <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it, it does feel easier to, you know, which is why I think that you have that reaction on the right as well. Like mm-hmm. that's why like authoritarianism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's easy. Yeah. It's, well, I mean, let's, let's play out this whole sort of like revolution thing. If we could just for a quick second. Okay. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about what happens in a revolution, right? So, so say you're successful, the movement comes along successful overthrows the government, right? A, a power vacuum is then created, right? So uh, that is going to be filled immediately by whomever is organized and ready to go to go fill that void. Right. Yeah. Um, more often than not, it is not the revolutionaries. It's not the people that go in and fill that because they have no idea what to do. They're kind of like the dog that finally catches the car. Right. They have no idea what to do. And we see that play out. I mean, we saw it play out all over the Middle East with the with the Arab Spring. Look at what happened in Egypt. Right. Yeah, yeah. The, the goal. OK, let's get Mubarak out. Let's get Mubarak out. The people uprise. He's gone. Who's there to fill in the void? It's the status quo. Right. Yeah. A dictatorship by a different name uh, yeah. goes in there and fills the void. And it's the same thing. Uh, unless you have. Um, you know, uh, this, this organization's, this organizational sort of like power behind you and you are ready to go in and, and take over and form that someone else is going to do it. And you know what? It's going to be whoever has the most power and the most money. And that generally is not the good guys. (laughs) Generally not. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. The, uh, well, and I guess in a smaller sense, you saw that on the sixth, right? Like, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, like they, they, in the insurrection, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they ran into the uh, the buildings there and they all you see people standing around taking selfies like they don't know what to do they yeah. just were outraged and ran into the building took a podium <laughs> right like, oh, yeah and i'm i mean i want to believe that the left would be more would be better at that <laughs> but we're all still just people right yeah so, yeah that's just that well we're at about 40 ish minutes so i guess uh is there anything you guys want to say uh before we end the episode 
None. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would just uh, you know say, well, first of all, thanks for having us on the show. Uh, really enjoy your your podcast, and and thanks so much for inviting us um, uh, to join uh, uh, you today, and and you know chat with you and all your listeners. Um, yeah, I mean, like what what I would like to say is just you know uh, I I do implore people to be open minded about you know those on the left whose values are very in common with yours, but maybe not a hundred percent of them, and to you know, to stop with the purity test, to start with the, to stop with the litmus tests and to, you know, have an open mind to work with others um, who are working towards the same goals as you, but maybe in a different way. Um, I, I think it's really important to, to do that. And um, yeah, I mean, I'd also just like to take the opportunity to, uh, you know, thank all of our uh, our listeners who might be tuning into this episode because we're going to push this uh, on on New Left Radio as well, and and to thank them for uh, for all their support over the years. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much uh, all I got to say. Yeah. Uh, so it's funny because I ask kind of a similar question at the end of the episode, mm. and and I'm always like, I'm glad I don't have to answer it. Um, <laughs> now I do. So yeah, look, I think we got a lot of work to do here. Mm. Um, yeah. You know. It's good we're having this conversation. It's good that like your show exists, it's good our show exists, it's good that there's organizations that are doing this work and it's all important stuff, but like the ecosystem on the left in Canada is still pretty young. Um yeah. It's not developed. We got a lot of work to do there. And like you know, one of the things it's funny, if you read and I know this is kind of there'll be people who take issue with this, but if you read, read Brad Levine's book uh, who is kind of the architect of the NDP's Orange Wave uh, with Jack Layton? He says, like, what did we have to do? We had to build an inf- an ecosystem to support what we wanted to do, and that means like we had to we had to create policy think tanks. We had to create, uh, you know, we had to create pub- you know surrogates that are going to go out and tell the story that aren't politicians that are going to be in the media. We had to like work with columnists to get them to write you know, things about the NDP that were good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we actually had to like do the work of organizing people and the work of building a political party and, 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 right? And so it worked. I mean, for them, it was like the best showing they had in a hell of a long time. Yeah. Um, I think like we have to think about that too. And, you know, that's kind of, it's what we've tried. It's what I, it's kind of my, my work, like my personal work, my, my goal, my vision is like, we have to, I want to build that. Um, I want to build like a media infrastructure. I want to build think tank infrastructure. I want to, you know, like we have all of these parts are critical to actually achieving the goals we want to achieve, right? We can't, if we, if we build organization and we help to get people elected that, that we think are going to make change, then we have to give them the tools like policy wise to actually enact right. that change. Yeah. And then we have to give them the cover and the public support through the media uh, and build consensus around those ideas if we miss any component of that, it doesn't like we might as well not even start. Like we're right, we're, there's a roadblock at each spot, right? And if yeah. you don't do the work to get through it, yeah. so it has to, we have to think. Like I, I think we have to think about it in a bigger way. Like we often think about if we just get the bodies together, like we get enough people who cast the ballots, then we're good. That's not enough. <laughs> if we get enough people who you know who donate to the think tank, like that's that's not enough. And it's not enough to have you know one publication out there. We got to have an ecosystem of these things that are all pushing on. The, the culture at large, Canadian society, and creating the feasibility for these ideas to move forward. Uh, otherwise, like, you know, we'll be having the same conversation in 50 years and saying, like, mm-hmm. hey, do you remember that time, like, after the pandemic when the left kind of had a bubble and then I went back to the status quo? And like, yeah. I don't want to be there. I mean, frankly, no, like, right. you know, th- our problems are too big. Yeah. And I mean, 
there's a lot of people suffering right now, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And if we're still having this conversation in 50 years, then like the number of people suffering is dramatically larger. So uh, if you're only, you know, that's what I mean about working together, right? Is that if you're only willing to work with people who uh, align with you, like 100%, nothing's ever going to get done. And like, honestly, like with looking at the country and how many people are falling behind and not being taken care of and how many people, you know, need these changes to happen, quite frankly, it's a very selfish perspective to have. Um, you're putting yourself and your own ideology ahead of, the the good of uh yeah. of of everybody else and to me that that's not what socialism is it's actually the opposite yeah i i was listening to a cbc uh podcast a while back and they were uh discussing uh food banks and mm. during the pandemic and one of the one of the workers at the food bank or organizers for a food bank was saying like okay we're a band-aid what we need is to change the system and to hear that uh, on a CBC radio, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it gave me a, a, a bit of hope that yeah. maybe there's stuff going on. You know, people see what's happening and maybe we can make some change. So, all right. Where can people find your content? <laughs> well, you can find us uh, on Twitter. Uh, handle is uh, New Left Radio 1. Uh, and uh, New Left Radio is available on all the major podcast uh, suppliers. So uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere you find podcasts, really. Um, you can uh, you can find New Left Radio and you can hear uh, Joe and I, uh, I know, yammering at you five days a week. <laughs> That's awesome. I have to admit, I do not listen five days a week. <laughs> <laughs> but but I listen fairly you. regularly. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for uh, for having us, uh, Corey, and and thanks for your uh, thanks for your listenership as well. Yeah, thanks so much. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that interview. I really like talking to Roger and Joe, and I think they had some great insights on left politics and what some of our goals and actions should be. I think that I'm still considerably more on board with revolution than they are, uh, but I think they made really good points against the idea. Uh, if you have any thoughts on the subject, then let me know in a comment on YouTube or by email. I would also say you can comment on social media, but I'm not going to check that. I'm not going <laughs> to respond probably unless it's very uh, articulate. Um, but email is probably the best way to get that to me. Uh, Mind of a skeptical leftist at gmail.com. <laughs> so I guess before, you know, uh, with un- nothing else to say, um, I'll send you over to Ask an Anarchist. Okay, so this is the first installment of Ask an Anarchist, uh, where I'm not talking to Renee. I have a comment from TikTok that uh, was one of the first comments that uh, actually contained a kind of question. Uh, At Dammit Cammy asked how in an anarchist community we could deal with criminals. Uh, with the added question of, is there such a thing as an anarchist community? So I'm going to answer this in two parts, I suppose. Uh, I kind of answered the question of crime or criminals uh, in one of the previous videos, but I wanted to go into this a bit because often when people ask this question, they have a specific example, and then you get kind of sidetracked in those specific examples, and it takes a different kind of uh, thinking, a different kind of creativity to answer it. Uh, and not every specific instance has an answer that will cover all the objections to it or to uh, uh, the overall idea of how to deal with crime or criminals. Um, 
But now we can answer the crime of criminals in a broad way, and then, if necessary, uh, a community of anarchists can then apply uh, the general principles of anarchism in two specific cases after the fact. So, the question is, what does an anarchist community do about criminals? Uh, for that, I'm going to read a section of the essay, The Anarchist Response to Crime, uh, from the Anarchist Library, and I will provide a link to it in the show notes. So, the question starts, the section starts saying, do we need prisons? And not long ago, there was a time when being banished from a community meant expulsion to large expanses of land between frontier towns, feudal merchant centers, or city-states. In those areas, a person had to fend for themselves, and they were at the mercy of any predator, human or animal, who came upon them until they could come into another community who would agree to accept them. These islands of sanctuary were all but all independent, and many areas were beyond their influence. In a modern society, with most of the world populated and communities mostly adjacent to each other, there are no more frontiers to which a person can be banished, where they will not still be in the same society. There are no city gates where a person would be instantly recognized as an undesirable and locked out. If we released a predator, release a predator, we release them to prey on someone else. In an anarchist society where violent crime will become increasingly rare, the number of violent criminals will be a lot less than it is now. Since we cannot banish them to a frontier, we must banish them to the only artificial frontier which exists, the prison system. Their limited numbers will actually enable the society to incarcerate all its violent criminals without an, or any early release that might threaten the society. Since banishment must mean incarceration in modern society, incarceration will necessarily concentrate the most violent elements of society and place a demand for resources on the community to feed, clothe, and shelter those who are banished. It would be as immoral for those banished to be parasites on society as it is for capitalists and other economic criminals. It is therefore necessary that centers of incarceration fully compensate for the resources they consume and be fully self-sufficient whenever possible. This can be best accomplished by allowing those who are banished to have limited liberty within the prison in exchange for contributing useful labor to their prison community. It is not likely that the most violent people in society can be contained and organized to sustain themselves without some coercion and social control. We must therefore concede that those who reject the benefits of the anarchist society and choose to live apart from it should not expect anarchist benevolence when they are, when they are banished. Neither should they expect punishment or rehabilitation. Those who are banished must be denied visitation from an anarchist society which they have rejected. For all practical, practical purposes, they are dead. However, anarchists do not believe in a death penalty for any crime. First, death is not a corrective measure. When a person is killed, it in no way changes the act of the violent criminal, nor makes the person, people any more safe than merely segregating the violent criminal. Therefore, the death penalty is a merely a political act. Its sole function is to enable the government to legally murder someone as an example to a group of people. It wishes to coerce, for reasons beyond the murder, someone at, beyond the interest of public safety. Second, death is not a deterrent. It is, not, it is impossible to use the threat of violence as to coerce a determined violent criminal into not committing a violent act. An act of violence because violence is either spontaneous or premeditated. People who go to the trouble of plan to plan crimes of violence do not believe they will be caught. Some people may feel that segregation of violent criminals is somehow inhumane, but only the most inhumane individuals will require segregation. This is especially true of the criminally insane 
I'm not sure I really like that term, but that's it's in the essay. Uh, this is especially too, true of the criminally insane who pose an even greater threat to the social peace than premeditated killers. Any prison system which remains must have a special facility for the criminally insane. All criminally insane violent criminals will have to be kept in isolation. Anarchists believe that a society with social justice and free mental health care will greatly reduce the number of mentally ill people, including those who are criminally insane. The best disposition for those who are incarcerated is to be held separately for sleeping purposes and released for daily work periods. Those who do not, those who do not choose to work should remain in isolation. Large areas of incarceration facilities should be devoted to food production for use at the facility. Hard work at the facility makes the time pass more quickly and uses up a person's energy so there is less violence between those who are incarcerated. Those who endanger the lives of other people in the prison should not be allowed on work details. We cannot expect incarceration facilities to be self-sustaining. They will be a liability the community will just have to accept as part of the price of their freedom. In an anarchist society, the number of people who are banished and incarcerated would only be a fraction of those incarcerated under the legal, economic, and social system that now exists. Anarchist societies do not become come into being overnight. We must accept that many of the bad people from the old, capitalist, authoritarian, and chauvinistic society will still be around when an anarchist society is still in the process of being organized. An anarchist society must be prepared for many of these people to reject the new society and must set an example with them that an anarchist society is both more fair and more uncompromising in dealing with issues of crime and social peace. We must be prepared to liberate all those who are now incarcerated for actions no longer treated as criminal act without mercy in in incarcerating and act without mercy in incarcerating all those who will not respect the social peace in the new anarchist society. We must accept that it may take a few generations of experience in the new society and a lot of incarcerations before the society at large is purged of the bad influences of capitalism, authoritarianism, and chauvinism. It is the ultimate goal of an anarchist society to do away with prisons altogether. We can begin by releasing all those unnecessarily incarcerated under the current system and, and closing those prisons where they were held. Afterwards, as society is transformed, prison populations dwindle and, pr and prison populations dwindle, we can systematically close and dismantle all the remaining prisons as the need to banish violent criminals is minimized. So you can see, like, this, the idea is that uh, right off the hop, we're going to release people who haven't, who aren't hurting other people. Like, if you're in jail for, if anybody's in jail for uh, a, some petty crime, then we're just going to, you know, whatever, if it's like minor theft or like, uh, you know, drug possession, obviously, or, uh, if you're, you know, a sex worker, uh, who's been uh, imprisoned, then, you know, okay, you're out. You, you go, you get to <laughs> go and live. Uh, but sometimes you have people that will still do things that are bad. I think one of the things that this didn't focus on is how the community itself, uh, will play a role in determining, like the action, right? Like the community will decide if somebody's actions are so without, uh, so premeditated, so violent or so, you know, without redemption that they absolutely just have to be, uh, kept away from, uh, everybody else. Like, and like, say like, I, when I was talking to Renee, I suggested banishment and, uh, 
he kind of didn't he didn't like that because uh, like obviously banishment isn't a cool thing um, but but you do have shitty people sometimes and you do have to deal with them and on some level and it is important that we have you know we know the cause of crime comes from various social issues and various uh influences within society and various you know internal motivations that you know are based on mental health or material needs being uh not met and i think the main the main takeaway here is that yes we will have to have uh some kind of incarceration uh i don't i don't really like the idea that we're going to rehash the exact same um prisons as we have now okay well i just wasted five minutes looking for another uh more comprehensive answer that might you know include some of the things that i really wanted to emphasize and the there's part of the essay uh the anarchist response to crime also has a uh how is crime remedied section and by and large this lays out the ways in which there will be fewer crimes uh anyway because so many crimes are tied to material needs or 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 other issues social issues that we will be addressing in an anarchist society so yeah i guess the idea is that we're going to have uh you know your community is going to decide on this um without not not some leader who says this is how it's going to be uh your community is going to decide on this your community is going to decide decide on uh what severity of crime uh warrants incarceration your community is going to be the one that decides on many of the things involved with uh say a punishment or a a a carceral type of uh justice but by and large like you won't have the same type of policing or the same type of prisons or the same type of anything because so much of what we have now is built in the name of restoring and maintaining capital so yeah i guess you know uh, according to a lot of anarchists we're still going to have prisons it's not my favorite thing i would prefer you know to focus on the idea that we won't have to deal with that but uh, i guess you know people want an answer this is how it is. It's disapp- it's di- disappointing to me, honestly, because in my vision of the world, um, prisons aren't necessary in the same way, and you can you can spend time, and it, it's not considered a, a a parasitic. I wouldn't have used that way of phrasing it as as they do in the uh, anarchist response to crime on calling like a a prison a parasitic thing on society. I would call it a part of the society we live in. It's part of, you know, and absolutely I believe in rehabilitation. I believe that that's part of it is that you don't just abandon people who have committed these crimes. You try and figure out why they've committed these crimes and you try to address those reasons. And then you still might, you still might have to uh, have people who are, you know, isolated and away from society because they just can't be, dealt you know there can't be addressed their issues addressed in that way and i don't know it doesn't make me happy to think that there's going to be people like that but i I have to accept the reality that that's going to happen sometimes 
So, but again, like uh, talking to Renee, we talked about manatees and, and not manatees, but people speeding their uh, jet skis through uh, the manatees area and endangering them. And I think that you could, you could say, okay, well, this guy's just an asshole, right? Or you can try and find out why he's behaving that way and what, why he feels the need to do that is when there's, you know, plenty of other areas where you can ride your jet ski with impunity and you don't have to worry about it. But, but that's, I guess that's part of it. Right. But so, uh, I guess part of anarchist society would still resemble, uh, prisons and that's how we would deal with criminals. As for the second part of the question, which I guess I, I haven't even touched on even a little bit yet. Um, there aren't currently very much, very many like anarchist societies. Uh, I know, uh, Rojava or Rojava, however you pronounce that, uh, is considered an example of an, an anarcha feminist or social ecology, uh, community. Um, and they are holding their own against outside forces and they have uh, a very structured, uh, way of living. And, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I recommend, uh, Robert Evans podcast, the women's war, um, for more information on that. And, you know, there's plenty, there's lots of resources out there, uh, for, uh, people to learn about Rojava. So, all right, that's it for ask an anarchist. I hope this, uh, answer meets you well. And, uh, Maybe it'll disappoint you as much as it disappoints me. And you're going to say, Hey, that sounds exactly like what we have now. But I think, I think that, uh, what you need to look at is the bigger picture and how few people are actually going to be in these, uh, prisons. So, okay. Well, that's it for ask an anarchist On to uh, red reviews with Justin Clark. Hi, and welcome to uh, red reviews. Number 10, <laughs> 20 weeks. <laughs> that's amazing that's pretty awesome yeah so uh thanks for doing this i i think it's a, been a really good addition to the show so well thank you for letting me do it i mean it's been a real pleasure for me i've really enjoyed doing this myself it's something i look forward to doing i love doing the prep work for it because it's a lot of fun to just you know you know i'm doing i'm reading a lot of this stuff anyway so the other thing too is that it also keeps me on track. So like if I know I need like I have like a date I know that I've scheduled <laughs> right. I'm gonna do this book, like I have to get it done. Yeah. So like that's kind of the other thing too. It keeps me on track. But yeah, ten episodes we've done now. Um and I couldn't think of a better book to do tonight to celebrate doing ten of these than a book that was re that has been really important to me and one that has really shaped my own sort of political evolution. Um, you know, it's the book that really, for me, uh, besides actually just reading foundational texts of Marxism and Lenin, made me a Marxist-Leninist. It, it sort of solidified my political ideology as it is, um, for now at least, you know, who knows. But, but, but basically, you know, but like where I'm at right now, it's it. And so tonight the book is um, Black Shirts and Reds by Michael Parenti. Cool. Uh, the subtitle is Rational Fascism and the Overthrow of Communism. This is a book that 
everybody should read. It's very, very short. It's, you know, it's less than 200 pages. It's very easy to read. And in fact, if you're interested in like listening to parts of it via audio, you can check out the Revolutionary Left Radio podcast who's done, I think, episodes on it. Um, not to plug another podcast other than your yeah. own, but, but you know, because obviously everybody <laughs> should be listening to The Mind of a Skeptical Leptist and everybody should be fo- uh, following you on all the socials and com- contributing to Patreon. Um, but, <laughs> of course. Of but course. after you've done all of that, after you've done all of that, you can check out the, the audio version of it as well. Um, this book came out in 1997. Um, and even though there's been, you know, almost 25 years separation between its publication and now. I think the core arguments of the book, the the key historical components of the book, the theoretical part components of the book are super important for us going forward. Um, and I think this is, um, this will be an interesting episode tonight because I think there are going to be conclusions that Perini comes to that are controversial um, but ones that I think are worth considering. Um, right. and, 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 and I think that, um, you know, if, you know, with your specific orientation, like if there's like a, like this one might require a little more back and forth. Okay. So like, if you want to kind of jump in and say like, Hey, this is how I view this as an sure. anarchist, like jump in, <laughs> like, that's fine. Okay. Because I, I want to have that kind of push, like that kind of push and pull with it, because I understand like this book has a very specific point of view. Right, right. So so just to give you a quick overview before we go into specific chapters, the book is really about a few major components. The first one is understanding fascism, how fascism took hold in Europe, and why the sort of common notion of fascism as being this like very irrational thing. Um, as being kind of a misnomer. And the phrase that he uses in the book is that, you know, fascism was using sort of irrational means for very rational ends, because fascism in and of itself is essentially the uh, complete and total domination of a state or of society by capitalism. Right, Right. That's what fascism is, right? But what separates fascism from sort of, you know, run-of-the-mill right-wing reactionary politics, at least in Perini's estimation, is that the difference between like sort of right-wingers and fascists is that fascists have essentially a revolutionary garb. They sort of dress themselves up as being revolutionary or transformational, right? So like Nazis, right? It was the National Socialist Party, right? Even right. though, you know, so, the, so even though they weren't necessarily socialist, I don't think they were socialist at all. They took that <laughs> no, name no. in an attempt to get people who could be sort of squishy, you know, people who sort of weren't necessarily firmly either in the sort of social democratic party of Germany or weren't a part of the communist party. Um, and it sort of, it, it achieved that kind of goal, right? So... So it's about fascism. The other component about it is talking about communism and 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 in a broader understanding, both historically and theoretically, and about how there's um, an effort to undermine communism as an idea 
Um, and when we say communism, we don't mean like the sort of the communism of the abstract. We mean actual communism. So like right. it is the Soviet Union. It is the DPRK. It is China. Yeah. It is it is um, Vietnam and Cuba, like actually existing socialism. Right. And a lot of the sort of myths and distortions and outright lies that have been told about actually existing socialism over the decades and sort of dispelling those myths Okay. Um, in an effort for us to get a more accurate picture of actually existing socialism, flaws and all, right? flaws right. and all, but getting a more accurate picture that isn't painted by the sort of capitalist imperialist viewpoint that often comes out of the West um, or out of the United States or the capitalist world, right? Yeah, yeah. Because um, the West in and of itself is, an, is, is a very, it's a term that has a lot of baggage, right? So like <laughs> yeah, gen right. generally when we say, the West, what we mean by that is the United States, Western Europe, the yeah. Anglophone countries that are all, you know, deeply capitalist, deeply imperialist. That's sort yeah. of what is meant by the West, right? He talks about the sort of structural problems within the Soviet Union that sort of led to its fall and why the fall of the Soviet Union was not a really a moment to rejoice. It was actually a, mo a moment to realize just how bad things could get. Because once the Soviet Union collapsed, what replaced mm -hmm. it was this sort of very right-wing, very pro-capitalist, sometimes even proto-fascist governments that now exist today in Russia and in Eastern Europe. So that have pretty much yeah. replaced the Soviet Union. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and I think in, in for a lot of people, especially people who live or are old enough to remember living under the Soviet Union, um, is objectively worse for them in terms of material material conditions, just objectively worse. Right. Um, and then the, so he spends about two, three chapters on that. And then the last couple of chapters of the book are about the importance of Marxism as a sort of theoretical framework and why Marxism matters okay. um, and why we shouldn't abandon it, why we shouldn't run from it. You know, and him writing this in the late nineties is really important, right? Cause he's one of the few people sort of holding the mantle for, um, Marxism and specifically Marxism Leninism at a time when that was extremely, you know, uh, gauche for the mainstream crowd, even intellectuals, right? Um, we were, you know, the 1990s was very much the beginning of the sort of intellectual drift away from Marxism into sort of postmodernism and into other forms of sort of explicitly non Marxist left political philosophies. And then the last chapter is about um, class and why class matters, but how, but he actually sort of anticipates the sort of class reductionism um, accusation and, and um, actually pretty much rebuts it um, and, and explains okay. why the class analysis is intimately intertwined with notions of race and gender and the environment. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's kind of a brief overview and then we can get into sort of the, the, cool. the, the meat of it. Yeah. I was, I mean, <sighs> I mean, we will touch on it more in depth when we get to that chapter. But uh, the thing that always comes to me mind for me is uh, like uh, intersectionality. Like I've heard mm -hmm. many, I've heard many people talk about how Marxism is incompatible with intersectionality. But I've always thought like class is one of the intersections. Yep. <laughs> so how can you how can you say that it's not a, you know compatible when that's literally part of the whole thing? Yeah, right. Where And what's weird is that, like, by no means were they, like, perfect on this. But if you actually read Marx and Engels 
and actually Lenin too, because you know, on things like the national question, um, they do mention notions of of race. They do mention notions of gender, right? So oh, okay, yeah. Engels himself wrote an entire book called "The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State," where he lays out those particular relations. Um, and and I would say, like even in his own writings, part of it was a mix of things. Engels lived about. 12 years longer than Marx did. And Engels also had a much different personal life than Marx did. So I mm -hmm. think that also influenced it. So for example, like Marx was far more like small C conservative in his personal life than Engels was. He had oh, okay. one wife, I think his entire life. Um, he, he, he was not into sort of notions of at the 19th century, especially the late mid to late 19th century, the notions of free love were very big. And Engels sort of gravitated to those more than Marx did. Okay. Engels was much more of a of a, a libertine or a raconteur than than Marx was. Um, <laughs> okay. Engels, as far as I know, Marx, uh, as far as I know, Engels never really married. He had permanent partners, but he never married. Um, and at one point, his first partner dies, and he and then he ends up dating his her sister. So like, it's. Which, if you watch the 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 docu the sort of dr docu drama movie The Young Marx, there's actually a hint at it where he sort of talks to uh, his partner's his first partner's younger sister. Okay. But anyway, that's a bit of a digression. But yes, so like you're right. So like intersectionality itself comes out of academia. It's by uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, and she comes out of that sort of radical, in some senses, Marxist viewpoint. She's not like explicitly a Marxist, but like this idea that, that intersectionality is incompatible with Marxism is nonsense considering so there are so many influential Marxists throughout the 19th and 20th centuries that were, you know, people of color or women. So I right, think of obviously, right. you know, the, the, you know, I think of people like Angela Davis or the Black right. Panthers or um, Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael, um, Malcolm X. So like this idea that, you know, Malcolm X wasn't explicitly a Marxist, but was, was definitely, you know, had socialist, um, you know, leanings. Um, so yeah, like I, they are compatible and we'll kind of go into that later. So, cool. so the first chapter of the book, um, is about what he calls rational fascism. And one of the things that historians often do when they talk about fascism is they say that, well, it was, you know, it's very unique to Germany. You know, the the, the, the sort okay. of cultural context of Germany is why it became fascist, which belies the fact that Italy was fascist, too, right. and went fascist first. It went fascist, <laughs> you know, almost a decade before the Germany did. Yeah. And the point that Perini makes in the book is that that um, Mussolini himself, Benito Mussolini, the fascist leader of Italy from the 1920s until his execution in, I think, 1945, um, uh, he was actually a Marxist. He was a socialist in his earlier years and in fact had yeah. had conversations with Lenin. Um, and I think Rosa Luxemburg too. And, but he realized that like, if he could take power with the business interests, he would do it. So he sort of used the sort of revolutionary rhetoric or the sort of revolutionary patina of Marxism to catapult himself straight into fascism. And right. the coup that sort of leads to the takeover of Italy by the fascists in the early 1920s 
was bankrolled by financial interests. Um, so, for example, he mentions um, in, uh, in 1922, the Federazione Industriale, which was Mussolini's fascist party, composed of the leaders of industry, along with representatives from the banking and agribusiness associations, met with Mussolini to plan the March on Rome, contributing 20 million, million lira, which, was, which is their currency, or was their currency, to the undertaking. With the additional backing of Italy's top military officers and police chiefs, the fascist revolution, quote-unquote, really a coup d'etat took place. Um, and when it happened, the 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 uh, demographic that was hurt the most by the takeover of fascism was, were the communists who did endure as, as much as they could endure. Um, but many of them were either imprisoned or executed and sometimes both. Probably right. the most famous one to people is the Marxist intellectual Antonio Gramsci, who was a prisoner of the Italian fascists and died in prison. I think uh, from, you know, abuses. Uh, I think he, I think it was in 1936. Um, and so the Germany, the situation is very similar, wherein the, the, the sort of the, the fascist party that develops in there, the, you know, the, the, the national socialist party of Germany, the Nazis, um, they come to power in 1933. It's largely a bloodless coup. Um, it just sort of happens. The president of Germany, Hindenburg, essentially gave power over to um, Hitler, who became chancellor of Germany. And the Communist Party of Germany tried to do a last-minute effort after the elections of 1932, had tried to do a last-ditch effort to to have a coalition with the Social Democratic Party of Germany or the S uh, the SPD, right? And um, and so they tried, and they really wanted to try to build that kind of unity. And the SPD didn't want any any of it. They decided no, and so ultimately they sided with the fascists. Um, and because what people don't often know is that the Nazis never won, like really won, um, an election in Germany, like a plurality of the, the vote for the Reichstag or the Congress of Germany, their, their executive branch. So like, for example, you know, uh, in the campaign, um, of 1932, they only received 37.3% of the vote. Um, right. And so the thing that's understanding is like if you think of like the Social Democratic Party, like they were far more willing to side with the fascists than they were with the communists. <laughs> and I think that tells you all you need to know, which is that that's still how it is today. Right. You know, the sort of bourgeois liberal parties, right? So if like if there was a true communist party in the United States and it could enter into a coalition with the Democratic Party to stop like a fascist Republican Party for coming to power, the Democrats would side with the Republicans and the fascists because ultimately yeah. class interests matter far more than whatever notions of democracy or human rights that you care about. Yeah. And so uh, the thing that he mentions, and I said it earlier, is this idea that, you know, uh, you know, they – they were fascists are often pegged as being socialists because they, they, they people think of them as being sort of thrifty or whatever. But like the fascists, especially Nazis, plundered an immense amount of wealth and Hitler himself got an immense amount of wealth 
and yeah. and privilege under his reign. And one thing that's particularly interesting is that he actually um in, he invent he invented a new concept which was called the pro personality right. Um, which, quote, enabled him to charge a small fee for every postage, postage stamp with his picture on it, a venture that made him hundreds of millions of marks. So right. he basically trademarked his face and made the German public pay for it, um, which yeah. I think speaks volumes about where we're at here. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that really struck out to me when I was reading up on stuff was that, uh, like, the Nazis, they shut down unions and in favor put up like a an org a government organization that yep. ruled over the workers so there was no uh worker representation and if you complained then you were you know imprisoned or you were you know left to uh you were punished in some way so there was no union benefits there was no workers that could benefit from uh representation the way socialists might do it <laughs> yeah no that's a that's a really really good point the other thing that's really important is the notion of outside forces that sort of pushed fascism into the front, into the fore. So, like, for example, one of America's most celebrated capitalists, Henry Ford, was a fascist and supported Hitler. He actually had a portrait of Hitler in his office and, and, and Hitler had the opposite um, and supported the effort to have him become the leader of Germany. I'm trying to remember where he, where Perini says this specifically in the book, but it is, I think a very important point, which is that, um, you know, what the reason why fascism can come to power and be as gruesome as it is, is that it serves the interest of the capitalist class yeah. because the capitalists, their lives are largely unimpeded and it can enter in sort of monopoly capitalism where you can do away with a lot of competition because people often think that capitalism and competition go hand in hand when reality, they really don't. No. Capitalism lends itself to monopoly and cartelization far more than it does to competition. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really important. Um, so he says uh, here, uh, Italian fascism and German Nazism had their mirrors within the U.S. business community and the corporate-owned press. Bankers, publishers, and industrialists, including the likes of Henry Ford, traveled to Rome and Berlin to pay homage, receive medals, and strike profitable deals. Many did their utmost to advance the Nazi war effort, sharing military-industrial secrets and engaging in secret transactions with the Nazi government even after the United States entered the war. Um, if you want to learn more about this um, in documentary form, I highly recommend the multi-part series um, that Oliver Stone did called An Untold History of the United States, where he goes into the specific banking ties, um, particularly future members of U.S. government post-World War II who are definitely connected to fascist and Nazi right. banking interests. So the, there were outside forces that were um, – that were kind of bankrolling this shit from the very beginning. The other interesting story here is that uh, William Randolph Hearst's, new Hearst's newspapers, the very wealthy newspaper publisher from the United States, entered into a very lucrative deal with the Nazis. And in exchange okay. for exclusive rights to his international wire service, which is up, you, you'd have, it's kind of like the AP today where you'd have newspaper articles go all over right. the country or all over the world. Um, in exchange for that, that uh, the, United, the Nazis would get positive coverage in his newspapers. And in fact, some high-ranking Nazi officials actually wrote editorials in Hearst newspapers, including Hermann Goring. 
So, okay. so that's, you know, so right off the bat, I mean, you can go to New York times, New York times says nice things about Hitler in the thirties. Like, right, so it's like, right. there's all kinds of shit like that. So this gets us into talking about what happens after the second world war. So obviously fascism is defeated in the second world war, largely thanks to the red army yeah. and the Soviet union. Um, who lost millions of lives. I think it was like 27 million lives in World War II. Um, and uh, what happened was, was instead of actually persecute, not persecuting, but actually punishing and holding fascists accountable, Western powers largely absorbed them. So, yeah. uh, so for example, probably the most known that people remember is Operation Paperclip, which was yeah. the secret... U.S. plan to bring over German scientists and engineers to work on Na to work at NASA, um, specifically people like Werner von Braun, who helped design rockets for NASA, who was who was an out and out Nazi. Um, so there's that. I'm trying to think of what else. Um, uh, in Italy, there was something launched um, called Operation Gladio, which was a NATO inspired anti communist mercenary force that did a sort of strategy of tension. So, you know, hundreds of Nazi war criminals found a haven in the United States. This is me quoting from Parenti. Either living in comfortable anonymity or actively employed by U.S. intelligence agencies during the Cold War and otherwise. Um, enjoying the protection of high-placed individuals. Some of them found their way into Republican presidential campaign committees of Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and George H.W. Bush. Um, the first Bush. Um in contrast, when the communists took East Germany or the GDR, uh, when they took over East Germany, they removed some 80% of the judges, teachers, and officials for their Nazi collaboration. They imprisoned thousands and they executed 600 Nazi party leaders for war crimes. This, they would have shot more of the war criminals and not so many fled to the protective embrace of the West. Now, yeah. we can talk about whether or not execution is wrong and we can go into those moral questions. But I think it's very telling that the people who were supposedly saving us from fascism ultimately absorbed a lot of the fascists. And then the enemy after the war, the sort of evil communists or the evil Soviets, they were the ones who actually punished fascists for being fascists after yeah. the war. So ultimately I think the main, like the main lesson from this chapter is a quote that he has that I think is really important. And it's something we mentioned earlier which is, let's see, trying to find out where it is. Yeah, here we go. So this is from Prenny again. Some writers stress the irrational features of fascism. By doing so, they overlook the rational political economic functions that fascism performed. Much of politics is the rational manipulation of, of irrational symbols. Certainly this is true of fascist ideology, whose emotive appeals have served a class control function. So fascism succeeded largely because of capitalism. Yeah. And and had fascism morphed into an actual left wing ideology that was about, um, you know, class struggle and solidarity and, and equity, um, then the West would have gone after it mercilessly, which is exactly what they did to the Soviet Union after the war. Um, so so the second chapter is called Let Us Now Praise Revolution, where he goes in and he talks about the importance of of revolutionary struggle and why revolutionary uh, struggle is so important to um, sort of the advancement of left politics. And he talks about how, um, you know, he has this really great and interesting quote on violence, which is really important because I think there's this sort of, this sort of kind of 
bourgeois or sort of liberal notion of violence that like all violence is evil unless it's done by the U.S. state in service of regime change or humanitarian aid or what the fuck ever. So, you know, he talks about this. So he says uh, this is from chapter two. So he says the very concept of revolutionary violence is somewhat falsely cast since most of the violence comes from those who attempt to prevent reform, not from those struggling for reform. By focusing on the violent rebellions of the downtrodden, we overlook the much greater repressive force and violence utilized by the ruling oligarchs to maintain the status quo, including armed attacks against peaceful demonstrations, mass arrests, torture, destruction of opposition organizations, suppression of dissident publications, death squad assassinations, the extermination of whole villages and the like. So this is, I think, very important. So one of the things people don't realize is that when the, when the, when the Bolshevik revolution happened in October of 1917, it was largely nonviolent. The reason it became violent was because the Western powers decided to spend massive amounts of money and get a lot of forces together to try to suppress the revolutionary, the new revolutionary government of Russia. That was the big reason why violence began to break out mm. in that country. Castro, Fidel Castro makes this point, too, in a clip I remember recently. He's like, we did not choose violence. So violence is thrust upon us because of the nature of how the capitalist imperialist system works. The, you know, the only thing it truly understands is violence. So sometimes that's the only thing you can do. Right. And in doing that, sometimes you can make the world a better place. And so what he says is, he, you know, he talks about how, you know, like there are parts of the world like Cuba or the, the Indian state of Kerala, which is which is run by the, the Indian Communist Party. These are parts of the world that have sort of instigated revolutions and have developed social systems independent of the capitalist imperialist system. And you say what you want, criticisms aside, and there are some for sure, right. like these are systems that have benefited their people tremendously, you know, like, right. you know, human mortality is, was dramatically lowered under, under the revolutionary government of Cuba. And in fact, literacy in Cuba today is yeah. better than it is in the United States. Yeah. So, and in Kerala, it's the same thing where, you know, the only state of India that has even remotely handled COVID particularly well is the state of Kerala because of its strong social protections instituted by the communist government of that state. So and I think we've talked about this before regarding Cuba is like the, when you measure like the daily caloric intake of citizens in Cuba, you get a higher number for that for Cuba than you do in the United States as well. Like, yes. So less people are going hungry in Cuba than are going hungry in the United States. Absolutely. And there's no and there's no homelessness in Cuba either. Right, right. Which is kind of the other thing, too. Right. And they have universal health care. I mean, you know, you know, Cuba, you know, has a very is a very small island country. It's largely isolated, has become more so since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. Yeah. And yet it still has, you know, like I said, like you said earlier, you know, their their populace is better fed. There's no homelessness. Like the medical yeah. system is for everyone. Like there's a certain level of, of real achievement there. Yeah. And, you know, and again, that's like, I'm not saying it's that, not like, utopia, but no. it's, it's, uh, there's outcomes that are better than they are in quote unquote, you know, developed countries or whatever yep. you want to call the United States. And what's really important is, and this is the thing that he, I think Perini makes a point of saying in here is I can't remember if it's in this chapter or it's just a point he's made before, which is that 
you always kind of have to compare. Let's see. Um, let's see. Like, yeah, let's see here. Um, like, ultimately, you always have to compare the system that's in place to what directly preceded it, right? So like mm -hmm. in Cuba, for example, that was a society that was largely a, like a, 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 a sort of dictatorship that was controlled by the United States where, you know, children lived in squalor and there was, you know, violence and prostitution and untold human misery. And right. there were no hospitals. There were no schools. There was no real, any meanings of social welfare whatsoever. And then when the revolution happened in 1959 and for, you know, over 60 years now, um, the, 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 the conditions of Cuba are objectively better than they were before. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's what you always have to compare. People say, well, it's a lack of democracy. Well, they didn't have democracy before. Right. You know, Russia didn't have democracy before. China didn't have democracy before. Cuba didn't have it before. So yes, this may not be particularly democratic to you or to us. And this sort of standard understanding. Right. But it's far more democratic than the system they had before. And like, and it's, and, and so it's important to like not sugarcoat it, not be utopian, as you said, but it's important to acknowledge that like things got objectively better for the vast majority of people. They just did. And, yeah. um, and so, yeah, so we can kind of leave it at that's kind of that chapter. Um, and the, the next chapter is probably, there's two chapters of the book that are very controversial. This is one of them. Okay. So the so the third chapter of the book is called Left Anti-Communism. Okay. This is this is his chapter where he shits on Noam Chomsky. Ah. Um <laughs> so so basically we'll get, so we'll talk about this. So like he talks about how the way in which Noam Chomsky talks about actually existing socialism where he talks about Marxism or Leninism um, sounds almost indistinguishable from some right-wing hack writing for national review or commentary. Right. And that's true. I mean, I, I, and, and there are, I think there are deep theoretical deficiencies in Noam Chomsky's writing and thought. Um, I think there's a, there's a massive difference between reading Noam Chomsky and reading Michael Parenti, obviously like, they have different political beliefs and different political perspectives, but also like Perenni is also, is just far more theoretically astute. He under, and part of that is because he's a Marxist, like, you know, Chomsky is not a Marxist. So he has, he really kind of has nothing to stand on. And the solutions that Chomsky largely offers yeah. are just like, let's have a general strike. Okay. Which I mean, yes. Which, but... <laughs> it's fine. Like, that's great, right? But, like, okay, well, who's going to organize the strike? And and who's going to make sure, like, like th these are questions that are deep differences on the left, right? So, like, my opinion is, like, it'd be great to have a general strike. But, like, yeah. a general strike is largely worthless unless you have a plan. Yeah. And and yeah. you have to have a plan. And in my opinion, as a Marxist-Leninist, uh, a, 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 a thing like that requires a party. You know, it requires some kind of organizational force to strategize and to implement, you know, a, a, a series of steps to get us where we want to go. Right. Right. And I think like the beauty of anarchism is this idea of like, well, we don't need that shit. Like, and, and I, and I get that. Right. But like, there's a difference between like the real world and how the real world works versus like the ideal that people have in their head. Yeah. And that's the criticism that 
um, Prenny has of sort of left anti-communists is that a lot of them are sort of like, they want this like perfect fucking utopia that is, that is virtually non-existent. It couldn't happen. Right. So like the states, the, the, the existing socialist states, flaws and all are products of material conditions. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of them had to fight back onslaught of the sort of capitalist imperialist forces who, who just absolute rained fire on them for decades. So the fact that the Soviet Union lasted as long as it did, the fact that Cuba has lasted as long as it did is a real testament to that model. Yeah. But I know that there are real criticisms and I'll leave it at that. And you can kind of jump in here. Well, I just, uh, a couple things that came to mind is like, uh, obviously I'm very pro, uh, general strike. Uh, obviously you do need people to organize this. You do need, uh, like, I don't know if you would call it a party per se, but you need a group of people to get together. Like, uh, we have the IWW, right? Like mm-hmm. you could have the, the, that group get together and organize whatever, right? Which I guess unions and, and parties might not be that different if you, you know, if you're using them to organize people in, in a, a way that is standing up to the status quo. Um, yeah. And I mean, there, there are certainly anarchists that are not standing on like as firm a theoretical framework as Marxists, right? Like you have, uh, a lot of science is behind Marxism. <laughs> so, yeah, but we'll, we'll get into that in a little, later so, chapter, but please continue. Yeah, no. So I, I just, uh, but there's also many, I mean, anarchists are, are a very diverse group. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so, uh, I, I mean, I really can't say, uh, that Chomsky is the best voice for mm-hmm. anarchism either. Right. Like, and there are anti-communist anarchists <laughs> and, and we, I have my differences with them uh, because I think the goals are the same. So we should be more on the same page, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my, and that's generally, and I was saying this the other day, this is my criticism of, of some anarchism, not all of it. I can't speak for all of it, but my experience with talking with some people is that I find that sometimes the way that left anarchists talk about the state is almost virtually indistinguishable from libertarians. Yeah. And, and, I, and I find that to be very problematic because in my opinion, and this is kind of a, a theoretical difference, right? Is that um, the question isn't whether or not the state is bad or good. The question is whether or not who controls the state and why, mm. um, which is like a, a component, right? Like, so, you know, as yeah, yeah, communists, yeah. like as Marxist-Leninists, we seek a stateless society, but we don't think that going straight from having a state to just not having one is the right way to go because right. the conditions will ultimately flounder. And that's kind of a point that like Perenny makes in the book. I mean, he mentions this point specifically in regards to, I think it was Spain. Let me see. Let me find it here. Um Let's see. Um, hold on. Spain. Yeah, this was Spain in the 1870s. Now, obviously, the anarchists did get some control in the 1930s. But Spain in the 1870s, anarchists seized power in municipalities across the country. But the fragmentation and isolation of the revolutionary forces, which enabled the government troops to smash one revolt after the other. So um, I think what's important here is to note that, like, the problem, the sort of the, the sort of structural problem of having, like, getting rid of existing structures without 
necessarily thinking through exactly how those structures might be used or, or abolished leads to the sort of the bifurcation of different municipalities or structures. And yeah. so one of the criticisms that Perini has, and it's kind of pithy is that like, you know, left anti-communists love all the revolutions that never worked. Um, you know, which, um, you know, but it's like, you know, but you can say what you want about like, um, you know, the different situation of like different existing revolutions that were successful, whether it was Bol the Bolshevik revolution or the Cuban revolution, um, the DPRK, China or, uh, um, Vietnam, um, those were successful and they were explicitly along Marxist Leninist lines. Now, again, I'm not saying that like these are amazing places and like there's no problems. Right, Everybody's right. happy. <laughs> but like they actually worked, which is the difference between, say, like the revolutionary anarchist governments of Spain or in the 1870s or in the 1930s or more recently with Chaz, right? Out, I think there was what, Seattle? Like, yeah. I so mean, like that's a theoretical issue. And I would just love to hear yeah. your perspective on that. Well, I think like. And I, I might, I maybe bring it up way too often, but I'm constantly talking about Rojava and okay. the autonomous zone ran by anarcho-feminists and an anarcho, kind of a, a communalists, uh, that, you know, is still maintaining, uh, its hold on where it, it lo is located. And they've had to hold themselves against, uh, uh, various forces, ISIS and, uh, Turkey. Uh, <laughs> so and they've done a very good job right now. And what they kind of do is like, it's not that it's not that they don't have a, a structure to their organization, right? Like they have a military and they have uh, people who make decisions on a day-to-day -day basis for how to run their military. And uh, I think too often, like, and, and this is where the uh, left-wing anarchists often get uh, caught up in the anti-statism Mm -hmm. uh, is that they, they forget that we need to govern ourselves Yeah, and you don't have to, I, and, and this is where I get into the theory part where I don't think we have to have a state to govern ourselves. What we have to have is an organizational structure, right? And that, I mean, call it a, a party, call it a union, call it whatever the hell you want, yeah. but we do have to have like, we, we have to maintain our society in some way and we have to hold against outside forces. So mm -hmm. I mean, that's very interesting. I mean, I guess my question for you is, so the Rahava region, that's in Syria, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So here's my question for you, which is, this is one criticism I've heard of Rahava has been, and I don't know how accurate this is. So I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on this. Like one of the criticisms that people have of Rahava is the only reason that it has largely succeeded is because the U.S. presence there has, has essentially protected it. And if the U.S. presence wasn't there then they would be fucked. But so well, kind of, let, let, yeah, me, I mean, let me, I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Well, I mean, the U S did supply them with arms at one time mm -hmm. and that, but, uh, when the U S pulled out of, uh, the Kurdistan or wherever it was, like there was issues, uh, they were very concerned and I don't know how it's holding up. I haven't really been keeping up on it the most recently. Uh, but I mean, yes, it, if you have other forces detracting from those forces that are going to come at you, that's going to help. <laughs> yeah. Like, and that's kind I'm of, not going to deny that. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's kind of one of the criticisms people have. I mean, I, I, I'm happy 
that, uh, you know, a, a sort of left alternative exists out there. I think that's good. Um, but I think, you know, generally, you know, he ends the chapter with this really important passage, which I think is uh, worth kind of quoting here. So he says, having never understood the role that existing communist powers played in tempting the worst impulses of Western capitalism and imperialism, and having perceived communism as nothing but an unmitigated evil, the left anti-communists did not anticipate the losses that were to come. Some of them still don't get it. Yeah. And I think that's important, right? Yeah. So what I think what Michael Prenny is calling for here is a real sense of left unity, which is that we might have theoretical differences, but the sort of, you know, the sort of Chomskyite dismissal of Marxism, Leninism, um, because first off, I think it's very important to note that, like, I understand that Noam Chomsky is like a very smart guy. And I know right. in a lot of ways he's probably smarter than me. But if you've ever actually read him, to, if you've ever actually read him discussing Marx or Lenin, he comes off as someone who's never read either of them, mm -hmm. or that he's read them a little bit and then moved on. Um, and I, he also just doesn't give a shit about like the larger theoretical questions. His books are largely descriptive; they're not prescriptive, and that's what right. I would tell people. Like, I think Noam Chomsky is worth reading. Okay. But I think it's worth reading knowing that, yeah. like, you're not going to really get solutions. He's just going to let you know how deep shit we're in. He's not really going to tell you how to get out of it. Because yeah. the way of getting out of it, for me, and for Michael Perenni, and why I think Michael Perenni is better, is revolution. Like, that is the way out. Like, you can't, you can't reform this shit. And this idea that, like, oh, if we just elect enough AOCs to Congress... Well, like, yeah, that doesn't make it. <laughs> like, that's lovely, and that's wonderful, right? Or like, yeah. oh, we'll have a general strike. And I'm like, I love that. That sounds great. But what happens... The, the thing that's important to me is, like, what happens the day after? That's the important point. And that's yeah. something that we as leftists, regardless of your orientation, need to think about, which is that general strike's great. What comes the day after? Yeah. Because that was the yeah. problem that Occupy had. Occupy didn't think about what was going to happen after. They just sort of walked through the, you know, and I think what Occupy was did was very important. I, I'm not going to discount that at all. Yeah. But what I would say is that, like, they didn't spend enough time thinking about what happens after the protests, right? Which is something the Tea Party did. Ironically enough, the Tea Party people took the lessons of Leninism to heart. And... The, the Occupy right. people didn't, which was to their detriment, right? Yeah. And mind you, the yeah. Tea Party people were also better bankrolled and, and, and so on and so yes, forth. of course. But I know we're like 45 minutes. There's so much in this book that's great. <laughs> so we'll try to like – we'll try to catch – we'll try to go quickly through some other stuff. And we'll try to get past some. Sure. So the other chapter that he talks about is sort of – it's called Communism in Wonderland where he talks about – the sort of deep structural problems that did exist within the Soviet Union that led to its collapse. Okay. Um, a lot of them stemmed from problems of production, the sort of command and controls structure of production and the planned Soviet economy started to have problems. Um, it started to lead to sort of inefficiencies. The other issue was that um, he sort of calls it no one's minding the store. So he says, you know, the Soviet Union gets this sort of reputation of being sort of brutally authoritarian. But in reality, what was going on, at least towards the end of the Soviet Union, was that no one was really enforcing anything on anyone, which is part of the reason, <laughs> like, like quotas were not being enforced, certain, you know, social 
um, organizational components were not being enforced. So he calls it no one was minding the store. Right. And because of that, it ran into issues. And then ultimately what really led, you know, alongside all these issues was that, that there were members within the Communist Party of the Soviet Union that decided to essentially reform um, the system uh, to benefit Western capitalism and imperialism, particularly, right. you know, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union, who opened up two policies, uh, Glasnost and Perestroika, both which were policies about openness and and sort of, you know, allowing more political dissent, allowing more political parties. And the other one was sort of allowing some market forces within the system. Gorbachev's play at the time was that if we let in enough of these reforms, that it would save the system, but ultimately an undermine to the system because those were directly antithetical to one another. And you really, at that point, because of this sort of deep structural issues within the Soviet Union, you could have only had one or the other. So, you know, again, I think what's important is like Perenni sort of often gets the charge that he's just like a full-blown tanky and that like he... <laughs> thinks this you know, is the greatest thing ever. And it's like, no, he actually devoted an entire chapter of this book and entire sections of the book we talked about previously, Inventing Reality, on the very deep structural issues with the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah. So that's that chapter. The next chapter after that is probably the other most controversial chapter in the book, which is called Stalin's Fingers. Um, this book, this chapter is the chapter where Prenny gets the accusation that he's a Stalinist, which is not true. But what he does do is he actually goes through the real historical record of what was actually going on during the Stalin era. Right. So Stalin, who was the leader of the Soviet Union from the late 19, early to mid 1920s up until his death in 1953, was known as sort of being this brutal dictator. And some of that is without question true. Right. Like, like so the, the question of the purges and the show trials and the, the sort of political executions, all that's true. Yeah. Like that's not and, and Perini <laughs> even makes a point of saying that, that all of that is obviously true. What is not true is the extent to which the extent to which people died in the Soviet Union. So like right. Western historians often talk about like, you know, 10 million, 20 million, 100, 100 million, people, million people died. <laughs> and that's not true. Right. So like, how do they get that number? How do they get those numbers? Right. Well, they pull them. Most of them just pull them right out of their ass. Yeah. So it. the reason why the chapter is called Stalin's Fingers is because he recalls a story that a British historian takes at face value as being a, an admission by Stalin of the death of 10 million people. And okay. so there is an historian who, let's see. So apparently there's a story about how Winston Churchill asked Stalin um, uh, how many people died during the famines of the 1930s. Okay. Now, one thing that's really important to note about the famines that happened in the Soviet Union, they were right. They were real, right? Yeah. But why... Uh, people will bring up the Holodomor, Holod, Holodomor incident as one particular thing in which, you know, a lot of people died due to famine. Well, why did that happen? It happened because the Kulaks, who were the sort of like proto petty bourgeois um, farmer class, decided that they weren't going to um, jive with Stalin's government and, in fact, okay. destroyed some of their own crops themselves in an effort to stop Stalin's government from 
um, taking over the grain for the benefit of the people, right? Right. Now, that's one particular read of it that comes from people like Michael Prenny. Um, another one is a sort of, you know, revisionist historian named Grover Furr. You know, again, take this stuff, you know, with a little bit of skepticism. I think it's important to read stuff on your own and get a sense of your own critical judgment. But this is some of the stuff about it, right? The other thing that's important to note about famines, which I think is super important to note, is that when famines happen in capitalist parts of the world, they're never counted as deaths by capitalism. No. So, for example, the potato famine in Ireland, a lot of people, the common notion of the potato famine in Ireland was that they had widespread crop failures. And because of that, a lot of people died of famine or they left. Right. That's not actually what happened. There was there were crop issues, but like the, the 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 potato crop was largely good. The problem was was the actual capitalist government of 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 England at the time. Because remember, at the time Ireland was a part of the United Kingdom. It didn't become yeah. an independent country till you know dec you know hundred over hundred years later. Um, uh, basically led to widespread shortages. It was, it was a problem of distribution, not production. But those are never counted in the deaths of capitalism, right? You know, the, the hundreds of thousands of dead and regime change wars are never called deaths of capitalism. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the 46,000 people in the United States that die every year because of lack of health insurance, that's never counted as, as, as a casualty of capitalism, right? Yeah. And again, I'm saying this not to excuse the abuses of the Stalin period or the abuses of any governmental system. What I'm saying is that there's this weird, like, fucking double speak when it comes to the way that like the kill count yeah. of like a government is right. Yep. And this gets to the most important point, which is that the total prison population of Russia at the height of the purges, this is late 1930s was 2,022,976. Right. Not tens of millions, not hundreds of millions, 2 million. Now, is that a high number? Yes. yes. Is that probably bad? Yes. <laughs> Having said that, that's kind of around the prison population in the United States today. Right now. Yeah. Right now. Right. And that's actually a point he makes in the footnote, which is that if you include the 1.6 million in prison, this was in 1995. So it's well over 2 million now and include the 5.3 million who are under correctional supervision, either per, uh, per, parole, 3 million on probation. Um, you know, you, Sorry, 3 million in probation, 700,000 people on parole. You have a total of 5.3 million people within the criminal justice system in the United States, far surpassing anything the Soviet Union ever had. One of the things that's also important is that they, they always said, like, what about the gulags? Well, like, the gulags were bad, but, like, at the same time, they were never as bad as people thought them to be. Not to mention the fact that most of them were largely cleared out by the end of the Soviet Union era anyway. Right. Most of, I mean, half of the gulags, half the population of these prisons was released during the Khrushchev years, during the eras of reform, right? right so, like, right. you have that. And so the other important statistic that's important that comes not from something out of his butt, but actually comes from actual Soviet archives that were opened after the end of the government and were discovered in 1993, the actual number of executions in the Soviet Union from 1921 to 1953 was 799,455. Again, not a great number. Very high number. Very high number. Not great. Okay. Not great by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. But it's not the fucking millions that they say it is. Right. No, the way it was framed to me when I was growing up was uh, Stalin personally killed 10 million people <laughs> with his fucking bare hands. <laughs> because, and 
I'm not going to, I am not a Stalin fan. But... <laughs> and, and, I'm, and I'm not either. And neither is Perini. Like he's saying these statistics and these points right. to underscore the fact that there's a very large propaganda campaign that exists. Yeah. And if you look at these numbers, whether it's the prison population, the number of executions, it's not unheard of compared to the United States. If anything, it's less, right? Yeah. Because it doesn't take into account the fact that we, we basically committed a genocide against the Native Americans when we took this country over. Yeah. And it doesn't account the, the, the thousands, if not millions of dead due to the slave trade. You know, so like the United States, like this idea that the United States is like this perfect moral beacon and the Soviets were like these evil, right. awful people is bullshit. They both have their problems. And it's important to be honest about that, which yeah. is like, which is, which is Perenni's larger point. Um, we're getting close on time, so I'll go through uh, a couple other important things. So the next two chapters in the book are all about the sort of the fall of the Soviet Union and the emergence of um, the capitalist states in Russia and in Eastern Europe, the breakup of Yugoslavia and um, and the sort of shift to the right. And the thing that's important is people often think that like the, the, the Soviet people sort of embraced capitalism with open arms. That's not necessarily true. They embraced some of it with open arms. Right. You know, they liked the blue jeans. They liked the rock and roll. What they didn't like was their was their was their welfare state being taken away from them, which is what exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, life expectancy dropped dramatically in the 1990s after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, malnutrition, um, widespread poverty exploded. Um, and led to massive issues. The other thing that's really important is that, you know, we spent years before COVID um, talking about Russiagate. You know, Rachel Maddow, every other yes. minute of her show, she was talking about, oh, the Russians were interfering on in elections. One thing that's very important is that in 1996, when Boris Yeltsin, the first president of the Russian Federation after the fall of the Soviet Union, was running for re-election, and the United States explicitly gave money and expertise to his campaign in order to make sure that he won. The United States act as an outside interference in, a, in an election in Russia. Mm-hmm. So when people want to come, there's an enormous difference between Russians and a fucking troll farm somewhere buying a bunch of Facebook ads and running Facebook groups called Woke Blacks, which was one that they, they called it. <laughs> right. Because, you know, they have a, you know, as Adam Johnson says on the, the Citations Needed podcast episode on, on um, Russiagate, they talked about how, you know, they wanted to sound social justice but they had a very tenuous grasp of the English language. So, uh, right. so... There's an enormous difference between buying a bunch of fucking Facebook ads and running like a, you know, you know, woke blacks Facebook page versus spending literally millions of dollars and both direct cash and IMF guarantees and the explicit support of the Clinton government in the United States to make sure that you won. Not to mention the fact that Boris Yeltsin, when he took over, essentially um, shut down the Duma, which was the the legislature of Russia, and he ruled as a virtual dictator for over a year <laughs> in the Russian Federation, something the United States had no problem with because he was issuing in neoliberalism in the country. So the United States has no problems with dictators in Russia so long as they're doing their capitalist bidding. Um, so that's those couple chapters. He has a chapter on Marxism, and then he has a chapter on class. And with that, we'll skip over to two quotes specifically. Um, before we get to those quotes, is there anything specifically you want to comment on? I, I know we're, we're getting up close to time. so No, I don't have anything to add. <laughs> okay. Okay, so the chapter on Marxism is really important. He makes the – he stresses the point that 
Um, Marxism is not a, a sort of positivist science in the sense that it's like chemistry or physics. But what Marxism is, is a social science. It's a way of us, it's a way for us to understand the world. It's a way for us to put together a bunch of disparate elements and pieces of data and start to make general conclusions about the world. Yeah. And Marxism is very, very important. And in fact, it's probably more important than ever because of the nature of capitalism. And he wrote that in 1997. It's 25 years, almost 25 years later. Right. And it's gotten even worse. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to leave. I'm going to quote him here. He says, most Marxists are neither chiliastic nor utopian. Chiliastic means like wanting to bring on the end of the world. Mm -hmm. um, apocalyptic. They dream not of a perfect society, but of a better, more just life. They make no claim to eliminating all suffering and recognize that even in the best of times, there are the inevitable assaults of misfortune, mortality, and other vulnerabilities of life. And certainly in any society, there are some people who, for whatever reason, are given to wrongful deeds and self-serving corruptions. The highly imperfect nature of human beings should make us all the more determined not to see power and wealth accumulating in the hands of an unaccountable few which is the central dedication of capitalism. Uh, and I think that's a really great overview of what Marxism is. You know, we don't, we, we don't pretend to be utopian. Right. We seek to build a better world now with the conditions we have now and then build towards something even better in the future. And then the last chapter is about the importance of class analysis, which was largely starting to become largely absent by the mid nineties with a sort of academic turn of the political left and abandoning Marxism. Yeah. But he has this quote, which is really important for the discussions around class reductionism we often hear today, which is, he says, to embrace a class analysis is not to deny the significance of identity issues, but to see how those, how these are linked both to each other and to the overall structure of politico-economic power. An awareness of class relations deepens our understanding of culture, race, gender, and other such things. And he also says that that's extremely important for the environment as well. So, you know, as you said earlier, right, it's intersectional, right? It's all these different, yeah. these different variables, right? Class is one of them. And it's a very important one, right? Yeah. And in the United States, in my opinion, the two most important variables are class and race. Um, you know, gender is very, very important too. But like, if you're understanding the history of America and its structure, class and race are very intertwined, right? Yeah. And the whole structure really... is based on these two things. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, and then of course you can break down by like gender lines and, and, and so forth. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So we're right in an hour. So, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I know how much hard work you put into editing this stuff. So I want to keep it as short as I can. So anyway, Black Shirts and Reds, it's an incredibly important book. It's a book that everybody I think should read regardless of your sort of political tendency on the left. And um, and I think it will equip you with some really good information about the lies and the distortions and the misrepresentations of communism and really existing socialism in our media and in political circles, in the academics, in academic life, um, newspapers, so on and so forth. And it's also important to understanding how fascism really works because fascism really is capitalism in decay. That's what it is. And, and it's when imperialism sure. comes home. So yeah. So my, so yeah, highly recommend the book. It's incredible. Uh, and, um, we will probably do another Michael Prenny book in the future. Um, and because he's somebody who has had a really deep impact on me and in terms of my own political orientation. So.
So that's it. <laughs> so what are we, do we know what we're covering next time? Yes, we do. So next time we will be covering, I'm pretty sure next week or next time we will be covering a book called, let me see if I can get it on the screen here. <laughs> it's called The Origin of Capitalism, A oh, Long Review cool. by Ellen Meekson's Wood. This book is a really great corollary to Black Shirts and Reds in that it talks about the origins of capitalism and how there's a very traditional notion of what how capitalism came about that is even informed in some of Marx's work, but that we actually have to think about it a little differently. And so I think it's a cool book, and I look forward to talking about it with you um, next time. Right on. And where can people find your content? Sure. So people can find me at justinclark.org. That's my website. Um, and then um, I also have my Instagram page, justinclarkph, where I post book reviews and all other stuff. Um, the other thing is that um, I will be having an article be coming out probably sometime in September, October, about the friendship of, of uh, Robert Ingersoll, the late 19th century free thought order, and Eugene Victor Debs, the socialist leader in America. I'm, I started actually started writing that today. And so that'll be coming out. That'll be available um, in the Truth Seeker magazine, or it will be available for free at the Indiana Historical Bureau's blog where I work. Very cool. Well, thank you again for another great review and uh, see you next time. I guess. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, that read reviews with uh, Justin Clark. And now I will start reading from uh, the anarchist turn for Anarchist Reading Corner. All right. Hi, and welcome back to uh, Anarchist Reading Corner. I uh, just finished the segment on uh, Black and Red, where the authors <clears throat> go through the flaws in anarchism and uh, the flaws in Marxism and how they each antidote each other. And uh, now we're on to One World, One Freedom. So I'm going to set my timer for 15 minutes and go. One World, One Freedom. The connubial can <laughs> between Marxism and anarchism that we have outlined above is not simply a demand for a theoretical reason. It is not a marriage that ought to take place if the freedom of equals is to be realized. It is something that is inherent to the changes we are witnessing and that, for the sake of brevity, we can summarize under the name of globalization. Put in a nutshell, there is not only one freedom because the world has become one. Globalization does not just mean that there are processes that objective, object, objectively unify the globe, but also and foremost that we have come to recognize this fact. In a minimal sense, this has always been the case because we have always inhabited one and the same planet. What is different today is that we have to recognize this because there is no longer the possibility of adopting it, adopting an exit strategy. <clears throat> Let me briefly illustrate what I mean by this. Globalization is often presented as a set of processes which shift the spatial form of human organization and activity to transcontinental and interregional patterns of activity, interactions, and exercises of power. Globalization, in its numerous aspects, economic, technological, political, and cultural, has created a situation such that events, decisions, and activities in one part of the world can have significant consequences for individuals and communities on the other side 
of the globe. The concept of globalization points thus to the stretching and deepening of social relations and institutions across space and time. Fluxes from the local to the global and vice versa have unified the planet. Together with economic globalization already diagnosed by Marx and Engels comes political globalization. They are inseparable from many points of view. A promotion, promoter of economic and financial globalization, the nation-state seems to be one of the, its most illustrious victims. Sure, sovereign states are far from vanishing, but they are becoming something else, challenged as they are by a dispersion of sovereignty both above and below them. Perhaps where the crisis of the system of nation-states is most evident is the domain of security. It is in this field where the modern state, at least since Thomas Hobbes, has traditionally although surreptitiously drawn the strongest justifications for its existence, that we can best measure the degree of its crisis. Human beings, so human beings, so the modern argument went, are led to concede their unconditional freedom to the sovereign power in order to enhance their individual security. Even admitting that this was once the case, and I would deny that it was, it no longer holds true. The state is today patently incapable of guaranteeing the security of its citizens, not only from attacks with nuclear, bacteriological, or other non-conventional weapons, but also, and perhaps most importantly, from ecological and other kinds of human-made global challenges. No simple state could ever arrest an, epidemiolo arrest an epidemiological attack or even simply contrast global warming effects. Just as an aside, I mean, this was written well before uh, COVID, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, the evidence is all around us now, isn't it? No single state could ever arrest an epidemiological attack or even simply contrast global warming effects. I mean, the word attack doesn't necessarily fit, but it's a, it's a disease that's traveling unchecked in many ways. Hence, sovereignty is dispersed through what some have called a multi-layered global governance and what Negri and Hart named instead empire. All this points to the fact that, whether we want it or not, an anarchist turn has already begun. All this points to the fact that, whether we want it or not, an anarchist turn has already begun. This dispersion of state sovereignty, both below and above nation-states, closely resembles what anarchists called for centuries federalism. Indeed, if it is true that there is a sort of historical am amnesia among political scientists about Marx's prediction of globalization, there is even more striking form of amnesia over the contribution of classical anarchists in de depicting what a post-sovereignty world might look like. Titles such as the anarchical, anarchical, anarchical <laughs> titles such as the anarchical society by Hedley Bull, the end of sovereignty by Falk and Camieri, or even the global covenant by David Held, could well have been envisaged by classical anarchists, but they are all books by political thinkers trying to make sense of what was happening in the world, and with very little awareness of how helpful classical anarchism could be in this enterprise. Conversely, there are many passages in classical anarchist thinkers, such as the one quoted at the start of this chapter, that could have been written by one of the contemporary theorists of globalization, Malatesta's, Malatesta's idea that the development of production the increase of needs that can only be satisfied through the concourse of everybody, the new means of communication, the habit of traveling, science, literature, wars themselves, are tightening humanity into a single body whose parts can only find their freedom in the health of the other parts and of the whole self, whole itself, can be taken to a description for what globalization amounts to.
Yet, it was Malatesta's definition of anarchy. This shows how strong the ban on anarchism still is. Anarchy is already there, but it cannot be named. This is, however, only one side of the story. If it is true that an anarchist turn has already begun, we must immediately add that it is far from going in the right direction. Globalization does not only mean a horizontal extension of the chains of interdependence, it also implies an intensification of vertical ones. Power is not only dispersed below and above the nation-states, it has also penetrated within the deepest mechanisms of life. In a word, it has become biopower. The biopolitical transformation that Hart and Negri integrated into their concept of empire was first diagnosed by Michel Foucault, who traced it back to the innate constitution of modernity. Foucault's major intuition was the idea that, while in the first part of modernity, the sovereign power was mainly a power to inflict death, in late modernity, it becomes a power that is aimed at inciting, promoting, articulating, in a word, disciplining life itself. The two poles of such a biopower are the body of the individual and the body of the population, whereas the means through which it is exercised are various disciplines such as medicine, biology, statistics, demography, and the science of police. But today, biopolitical transformations seem to go beyond Foucault's classical analysis. They now invest not only modes of governance, but also economic production, in that it is the whole of our subjectivity that is invested in post-Fordist capitalism. Today's governance in both global is global both in its spatial dimension and in its inner nature. People felt the need for the new word, governance, or govern governmentality instead of government, because the thing itself has changed. No longer the centralized vertical power of the modern nation-state, governance denotes a reticular, a decentralized form of power which is enriched by the, the pervasiveness provided by new biopolitical technologies. It is a transformation that can offer possibilities for liberation, but also open the path to the most horrible servitude. Power can today more than ever control the deepest mechanisms of life, as well as the way in which we think about it. Today's governance is global because it governs our bodies as much as it disciplines our minds. The stretching and de deepening of the social chains of interdependence also means the stretching and deepening of the imaginary chains that potentially connect the entire globe. We think globally because the globe has become the horizon of our perception of the world, but also because our social imaginaries are increasingly intermingled. This is what Debord tried to convey with his idea of the society of the spectacle. In the epoch of the global communication networks, his prophecy about the transformation of the world into an immense collection of spectacles seems to have become true. The spectacle is not only a set of images, but also, and foremost, a social relationship between people mediated through images. This means that the way in which we relate to others is mediated by the images we have internalized from the social imaginary. Just consider what politics has become and what it used to be. The activity we usually denote with this term is inconceivable without the continual flux of images that enter our screens every day. The competition among images, like that among every other commodity, is so steep that the golden rule of the audience imposes itself. Only those images that capture people's attention become part of the spectacle, hence the increasing spectacularization of politics. What used to be an activity done by real people has become, to a large extent, a pure spectacle. Images are no longer what mediate our doing politics, but what risks doing politics in our stead. In other words, politics has become imaginal politics. In one thing, however, Debord was wrong. Like Marx, before him, he thought it was possible to counterpoise to the spectacle of the reality of things. 
In the epoch of virtual reality, images have instead become ongoing processes so that there is no longer the possibility to distinguish between original and fake. In other words, the society of the spectacle has become global, in the double sense that it has stretched its boundaries to embrace the entire globe, but also that it has invaded all ambits of life so that we can no longer say whether, where the spectacle ends and real life begins. In this scenario, Bakunin's idea that you cannot be free unless everyone, everybody else around you is free is timelier than ever. If our being increasingly depends on what other people think and imagine we are, then it is clear that freedom can only be realized as freedom of equals. There is no intermediate possibility. We are all either all slaves or all free. The new global movements that have emerged worldwide in the last 20 years have shown this very clearly. Note that I use the term new global and not no global. The reason why the media worldwide has called a movement that is the result and even advocates globalization no global is because they looked at it from the point of view of neoliberal ideology itself. The idea behind this is that neoliberalism is one and the same as globalization. So that whoever criticizes neoliberalism with its dogma that there are no alternatives is immediately stigmatized as a critic of globalization itself. With their direct actions on the occasion of G8, other summits, and, and the, the new global movements may not have changed the course of those specific political meetings, but they have certainly changed the spectacle that was staged by them. The organization and the actions of the new global movements perfectly respond to the challenges of our epoch. This is not only because many of their militants creatively combined elements of Marxism and anarchism, the two traditions of thought from which we derive the idea of freedom as freedom of equals. This is because, as Graeber put it, anarchism is the heart of the movement, its soul, the source of what, the source of most of what's new and hopeful about it. By this, I do not mean that its activists openly recognize themselves as anarchists, which is far from being the case, as many have noted. I mean that the intimate logic of their functioning is anarchical in its essence because it responds to the principle of free federation and association. As is well known, the new global movements lack any central authority, a charismatic leader, or even a fully-fledged program decide, decided once and for all. Yet this does not mean that activists do not know what they want, as observers locked into traditional terms of hierarchical pol politics may think. It means that this is a movement that grew up according to logic of networking, which strictly follows the emerging needs and affinities of the people. Its, its organization is non-hierarchical, its coordination decentralized, its decision-making shaped by a new attempt to reinvent new forms of direct democracy, and thus favoring strategies for consensus finding rather than simple majority rule. In brief, it works according to what anarchists have thought have for a long time called free federalism. Some people thought that this the new global movements died soon after 9-11, but this is, in my view, far from being the case. The reactionary turn that followed 9-11 made those movements dormant, but their legacy continued to work more or less underground over the next 10 years. And the news arriving these days from the so-called Arab Spring is telling us that the time may have come for them to wake up again. The spontaneous rebellions currently going on in the Middle East, obviously this was a while ago, so not currently, well, and that's time. So we're going to stop right there. I'm going to restart that highlight. There we go. 
So, and we're going to bookmark it. Okay. That's everything for today. Thank you for joining me for Anarchist Reading Corner. And we will do another segment um, in two weeks. All right. That's all, folks. Thanks for watching and or listening. Uh, remember to share the show with your friends and on the social media site that you use the most. Uh, thanks to everyone who supports this show on Patreon. It's really appreciated and it helps the show uh, a lot. It helps me a lot um, so that I can spend more time on this and my other projects and less time in my car doing gig jobs. If you want to contribute, you can do that at patreon.com slash skeptical leftist, or you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash skeptical lefty. If you can't contribute financially, then a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app of choice or one of the podcast review sites would be great. If you want to find more from me, then you can make, then make sure to check out the show notes or check out my link tree. That's linktr.ee slash skeptical Corey. You can find all of my social media stuff there, as well as links to my other shows, uh, which include Skeptarchy, which is a panel show I do with very smart people, and uh, From Many People's Strength, which is a podcast about Saskatchewan politics. Uh, my Twitter is at Skeptical Lefty. My Facebook page is The Mind of a Skeptical Leftist. Or you can send me a friend request at facebook.com slash cjbrainstorm. I accept most friend requests. You can also email me at mindofaskepticalleftist at gmail.com. And that's everything. Thanks so much for listening. I hope uh, you are all staying safe and that this finds you well. Mm -hmm.